a wise guy, eh? He sure is. He's Gene McCaffrey, and he's the wise guy of fantasy baseball. We'll talk with Gene about players, managers, umpires, and more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Thursday, February 22nd. It's show number two of the 2018 fantasy baseball season. And a happy birthday to my daughter, Olivia. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host. We have another great Thursday show for you. We'll talk with Gene McCaffrey, the writer of the Wise Guy Baseball Annual and the master of WiseGuyBaseball.com. We'll ask him about some of his player comments in the Wise Guy Baseball Annual, including Shohei Otani, Aaron Judge, Andrew McCutcheon, and many more, as well as key topics like the underrated importance of flyball percentage for pitchers, about taking pictures with those early picks, and how umpires are or aren't being measured. We'll also ask Gene for some early nabbers and slabbers, players to target and players to avoid. We'll also have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and the American League with Jock Thompson. And we'll have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the Minor League Minute. Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon reports on the Braves' super prospect Ronald Acuna. And in position previews, Greg Fishwick looks at outfielders. Later on, we'll be talking about the humidor with Todd Zola on a regular weekly Talk with Todd. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about roster planning for the new pitching environment. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Pitchers and catchers are at work in Florida and Arizona. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Thursday edition, our feature interview part one, Gene McCaffrey, the author of Wise Guy Baseball. Gene McCaffrey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's great to be back. Baseball, baby. Before we get started, what leagues do you think you'll be playing in in 2018? Well, I'm going to split a main event team in the NFBC with my uh, good friend and partner, John Mena. I'm going to do a couple of slow draft NFBC leagues, and I'm in Talent Wars Mixed Draft. Since I can't make it to New York, uh, I'm going to do the the mixed draft league, which sounds like it's going to be fun. Just got my draft spot last night, which is number eight, which is perfectly fine with me. Um, I'll do that, and then I'm going to uh, I'll do the keeper league, which is the XFL that we do in Arizona. And other than that, I'm going to play DFS. Yeah, you've been a- maybe I'll do a salary cap fan tracks team too. You've been a, a fan of daily fantasy for quite a while, practically since it started. What is it that you like about it? Well, what I really like is that you can react to the surprises of the year. You know, I, I've said this before, but you know, as as much as we do our draft prep um, and as we prepare for that, um, it, it's really like a snapshot of the best I could do on March fifteenth or whenever it is, and it quickly gets out of date. With DFS, you get to uh, you get to react to who has really improved, who has not improved, try to figure out who's, you know, the news from the noise and the um, the streaks from the genuine improvements and all that kind of stuff, which I think is really fun. And it enables, DFS enables you to do that, and I think that's great. I've always thought, too, that the salary cap structure, whether in year-long leagues or daily fantasy, where they provide you with the salary, uh, is a different 
a, a different method of playing versus auction. And I love auction, don't get me wrong. But the idea that they tell you what the salary is allows you to make some uh, projections or predictions about value versus salary. And especially in daily fantasy, there are arbitrage opportunities where you can say, wait a sec, this guy's way underpriced and allows you to to strike while the iron is hot in a way you can't do in auctions because you don't know what the price is until after the, the, the auction ends. Yeah, that's right. And also, you know, in an auction or even in a draft, you're going up against, you know, 11 other people or 14 other people. This is really, you're going up against a formula and um, formulas were made to be exploited as far as I'm concerned. When you're doing your prep and you've been playing fantasy baseball a long time, what's the focus of your preparation for a fantasy baseball season? Well, the way I do my prep is really writing wise guy baseball. Um, and that gets me familiar with the players. Um, little ins and outs that you always eat. Writing wise guy forces me to consider players that I probably wouldn't consider otherwise. Um, and you always see things that you didn't, that you weren't aware of before that. Um, so once I figure out, once I've got the players um, in my mind, then the rest of my preparation is figuring out who's going to play and who's going to be healthy, and um, and that's how I do it. Well, talking of Wise Guy Baseball, the uh, 2018 annual came out just a couple of weeks ago. About 600 player comments and uh, 20 commentaries on baseball and fantasy baseball issues. Let's start with the players. And uh, I was interested to see that you talked about Keon Broxton, who you say would be a good hitter, but he has one significant flaw. Yeah, and it's a big one. He, uh, he, he can hit a fastball in his wheelhouse. Unfortunately, he swings at every pitch as if it were a fastball in his wheelhouse, which it very often is not. Um, with all the new metrics, I'd like to see a metric for who swings and misses by the most, and I promise you that Keon would be on there. Um, anyway, the, the Brewers have voted. Um, they signed Kane and Yelich, and so Keon is without a job, and that doesn't really entirely surprise me. I guess until Braun gets hurt or Kane gets hurt, since they both have extensive injury histories. But you know, Keon is re- he's a reserve pick in mixed leagues, as far as I can see. You are not as high on Madison Bumgarner of the Giants as many touts and experts are for 2018. What's your worry? Well, you know, Patrick, um, I'm starting to come around to the public on this. Um, my original concern was that Bumgarner is making the transition. He was never really a power pitcher. Finesse plus is what, is what I call that type of pitcher. And he's making the transition to finesse. Velocity is only down a little bit, but um, he's a little easier to hit. Um, and he's throwing fewer fastballs. And I, But the reason I'm coming around to the public on this is because he is throwing fewer fastballs, and yet his control was 1.6 per nine, and that is fantastic. Um, he's got a better outfield defense. He's got a great park to pitch in. The team is going to be better. Um so I think I'm coming around a little bit to the public on this. I still don't think he's going to have an ERA a lot under three and a half, but he's, let's call him a lesser ace this year, and, and I will bow to the public a little bit on this one. And when you say control 1.6, that's walks per nine? Mm-hmm. Throwing in a 45% fastballs, and that to me is fantastic that, that a pitcher can do that. And 
You know, we, we know he's a craftsman. We know he's going to pitch a lot of innings also. And, in fact, and he's really as likely as anybody to lead the major league in innings pitched, and that's a concern. So, you know, I think I would still, I think I'd rather have DeGrom and possibly Syndergaard, but Bumgarner is in that class and and I think should be treated as that. Got to be flexible, Patrick. You can't just decide something and then say, you know, you have to always be open to new ideas and to new interpretations of the data. And so the public is, are not fools, I don't think, in most cases. Gene, uh, you mentioned Madison Bumgarner could lead the league in innings, and that I think is taking on a lot more importance than in pr- past years because of the shape of pitching staffs and how they're being used. I'll be talking a little later in this show on my Master Notes segment about how I'm looking at the difficulty of reaching innings minimums in the league I play in, you got to have a thousand innings, and it used to be pretty easy, right? You grab a two forty inning guy, a two twenty inning guy, a two hundred inning guy, and then you mix and match the rest of the way. But uh, Chris Sale led baseball last year; he wasn't even at two twenty. I think under two fifteen, as a matter of fact. So, does how does that environment affect your? how you look at the value of starting pitchers, uh, do you start having to give extra weight to a guy who might throw you 225? Yes. Uh, if you knew that somebody was going to throw you 225, 230, 240 even, I mean, he's number one, even if he's not quite as good in the decimals because the impact is greater. Um, I think there are basically three things that you have to do um, to regard in regards to this. And one is... We have to be looking for the pitchers who are going to have a big increase in their innings pitch this year. Um, say, and I, a couple of those guys would be Aaron Nola and um, and Price on on Boston. Um, Price, you know, was a horse, and if he's healthy, he's going to be a horse again. And he's going pretty low, so even if he's just a good pitcher, he doesn't have to be great. Um, he's got a lot more value than the other pitchers that are going in his in his area. Um, and those who do have, obviously, who, who are pitching more innings have a bigger edge. Um, so if you could predict them. And then the third thing is to look for relief pitchers who are going to throw comparable innings, who are going to also have a big increase in their innings pitch. Guys who are pitching more than one inning per outing um, because their relative value is going to be greater. I think everybody knows that. I don't think there's any mystery there, but it's sort of a mix-and-match thing that everybody's going to be trying to do, and that's what I think they should be doing. It's frustrating, though, isn't it? We've talked about this before, that you know, if you're if you're a manager and you're sitting there with two relief pitchers and one of them's excellent and one of them's just a, a borderline guy, why are they both getting 60 innings in a year? Why aren't you trying to give 110 innings to the good guy and 10 innings to the bad guy? And yet they they just never seem to come around to that way of thinking. And I was just uh, reviewing in the course of trying to figure out how I was going to manage these innings. I thought, well, we must be projecting some of the relief pitchers in baseball to get up over 100 innings. Uh, certainly I'm not expecting a Mike Marshall situation where a guy's going to get like 200 relief innings, although I don't see why it couldn't be done. But uh I look at the projected innings, I still see they're all topping out around 75. Do you see some relief pitchers actually getting up into the 90, 9,500 inning area? Well, I mean, I, I, I keep telling myself that I'm seeing signs of it every year. I've been saying it for about 20 years. Yeah. Um, but the Astros were so successful doing it last year that it almost has to happen. I mean, people imitate the teams that win, and this is obviously... A, a reliever usage strategy 
that can work. Um, furthermore, I think that a lot of these really hard-throwing relievers have control trouble. They're young. The more innings they throw, the more reps they get, the better their control is going to be. So I think that there are guys this year, there are definitely guys this year who are going to um, who are going to really come on the scene. You know, not like the Batanzas guys, you know, that everybody knows about. Maybe Goody on Cleveland, um, who have a big increase in innings pitched and get much better as pitchers at the same time. And that's going to be kind of golden this year, especially with the, you know, with a lot of bad starting pitchers and guys going five innings in the start. You know, if you have a rotisserie team and your your pitcher gets has one one road start that week, um, you got to throw in a guy like that, and he may even equal him in strikeouts in that particular week or whatever the time frame is. So the answer to the question is, I don't know. I hope so. I think so. Um, but let's see how it plays out. It almost has to be over time, but we'll see. I was talking about this with Ray Murphy last week, and uh, between us we kind of observed that if you ask a relief pitcher to pitch 100 innings in a year, it sounds like a lot, but it's only f- not even four innings a week. And it seems like with proper management, any relief pitcher should be able to manage four innings a week. You'd think he could probably manage more. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be too difficult to do in terms of innings management. I mean, relievers used to do it all the time. Um, you know, people say they're trying to protect their arms, but, you know, they won't get hurt anyway. You know, they never have pitchers been more babied and never have pitchers spent more time on the DL. So obviously there's a disconnect there, and nobody nobody is being abused, and they're still getting hurt. Um you have to, you can't tell me that once a pitcher is at 25 26 years old he can't handle 100 innings in a year as you say two innings twice a week you know that should be a piece of cake for these guys they're professional athletes for crying out loud well there's some baseball players you could scarcely accuse of that uh, i suppose but uh, you know uh, bartolo colon just signed with texas i guess so uh, you know the uh, professional athlete angle of it seems to be uh, uh, Maybe a little questionable for some of them, but I understand your point. Even even a, a guy like that, uh, Bartolo Colon, should be able to manage that many innings just because if you're a big league pitcher, it's just not that many innings. Yeah, and you know, also down through baseball history, there have been plenty of pitchers who who were overweight, who were successful, um, you know, and even good athletes. Rick Russell, I mean, uh, wasn't that his name on the – He's on the Pirates and the Giants. Fat Freddie Fitzsimmons. Um, there have been a lot of pitchers who've been overweight who who are kind of really spry on the mound too. I mean, they're they're better athletes than you would think to look at them on the street. So, and you know, how old is Bart? You know, he's been doing it for a long time, and he's been out of shape, you know, to the naked eye anyway, for a long time, and he's been still getting guys out with that junk that he throws up there. And just for the record, in 1974, I, I looked it up. Mike Marshall, uh, two hundred and eight and a third innings, no starts. Right. So it can be done. One seventy nine the year before. So uh, uh, Mike Marshall was an, an odd case, I grant you. But you know, I think it could be done. I'm just surprised they don't do it. Uh, you're more confident, Gene, in Miguel Cabrera of the Tigers as a bounce back candidate than many other touts seem to be. Uh, what's the source of your faith? Well, to begin with, he's a Hall of Famer, and he's one of the greatest right-handed hitters of all time. Um, 
nobody has ever expected to win the comeback of the year, but somebody always does. And I think that Hall of Famer should always top the list of potentials. Um, furthermore, um, I assumed that he was going to do everything he possibly could in the off season to to make his back better, which he has done. Um, he's great. He's dedicated to the game of baseball. He wants to play. That's another thing that um, should be taken into consideration. And and also his hard hit rate was still in the top ten last year. Um, so I think he's going to bounce back. Yeah, sure, there's health risk, but um, you know I see him going in the, the in the, in our November draft. I got him in the tenth round, and I said that's that's not right. Um, you know, even filling in, um, he's still Miguel Cabrera until proven otherwise. And I don't think one bad year proves it. Are you at all concerned? I guess I should say, how much are you concerned by the fact he's going to be in what looks like a pretty anemic uh, lineup? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of a factor for his production. I don't think it means anything as far as pitching around him is concerned. People say, well, he's on a bad team. Well, if he's on a bad team, then they're going to be behind all the time. Nobody gets pitched around when the team is behind. They go right after him. Also, you know, just even on a regular team, the vast majority of game situations, the pitcher has to try to get the batter out. Um, Also, you know, they're not utterly, uh, their offense is not, atrociously bad um so he'll be miguel cabrera and his production will be down a little bit but he's still going to hit home runs and he's still going to hit for high average so you know where he's going is a bargain one of the things that's really tough for a lot of people is when they look at somebody who has a real big year and then you try to decide is he going to repeat the year uh you believe for example in zach cozart who had a power eruption last season what do you think the story is with Zach Cozart, and why are you confident that he can repeat? Well, I mean, there is injury risk with, with Zach, um, but I mean, he's clearly improved as a hitter. I mean, he had a big improvement in his uh, swing strike. He's, he's elite. He's an A player in swinging strike rate. He's a B-plus player as far as swinging the pitches out of the strike zone. We knew he had some pop before last year, and last year we grew into it, and you know, I see people saying, well, you know, he's 32 now. and But the fact that he's 32, he's already defied the aging curve. So I don't see any reason to expect him to be anything less than he was, given the fact that he has some injury risk. Yes, I, I grant that. But he's also, you know, where he's going, he's a bargain, too. He's a good hitter. Speaking of power, Chris with a K Davis out in Oakland has been a very consistent provider of power over these last few years, and you say he could help teams more than we might expect because of batting average, and that seems a little odd for a guy who's hit exactly two forty seven each of the last three years. What are you thinking with Chris with a K Davis? Well, first of all, all consistency is false consistency. Um, he is, you know, I'm not delirious about Chris Davis with a K. Um, but he is going to hit home runs. He's walking more, um, which puts a floor under his runs. Um, and his, his batting average, yes, he could hit two twenty seven because he's a high strikeout fly ball hitter. But the luck could just as easily go the other way, and he hits two seventy seven, And then he's a jewel. Um, then he's 100-100. Um, so I, I don't, he's not going to hit two forty seven this year, and he's probably going to be way off it one way or another. Um, so I'm going to stick with that prediction. I'd like to see how that comes out at the end of the year. You can call me out on it if he hits 247 again, <laughs> and I'll double down for next year. 
You say Raphael Devers of Boston had a terrific rookie year. You say, and I'm quoting, an awful lot to like an awful lot. What's your take on Raphael Devers, and where does he go from a terrific rookie season? Nowhere but up. Um, you know, he, he had 50 at-bats against lefties, and he slugged 600 against them. And I see people saying, well, that's a small sample size. Wrong. For signature significance, it's a definitive sample size. I mean, if Raphael Devers had slugged 440 against lefties at the age of 20 with his first crack at the major leagues, everyone would have been delirious. And they would have said, wow, you know, that's really good that this kid could do that. When you slug 600 against lefties, it means... There's no way he's going to slug under 440 against them. And if he does that, his owners are going to be really happy. Um, not only that, but he showed immediately that he was ready for the big leagues. Um, he, he's another guy who loves to play the game, which I just love. I love to see. And he just, he belongs. Um, so I think this, you know, anybody can slump. But I think that his chance of, when you have high average power, that's two ways you can develop. That's half the chance that you're going to flop. And when you have all-field power, um, that's another thing that means you essentially that you can't really be pitched to over time. The Red Sox famously traded Yoan Moncada, apparently to make room, as it turns out, for Raphael Devers. Uh, how much stock do you put in the idea that the organization is willing to uh, use a use a player as a bargaining chip because they're so confident in the guy coming up behind him, as in this case. Uh, and it's a good organization. They're smart, the Red Sox. Uh, when you look at that situation, you say, boy, the Red Sox are willing to give up a blue chipper. Uh, I mean, they got a good, a good player in return, but of course prospects are the name of the game in the big leagues. They gave up Moncada because they were so confident in Devers. A lot of times we hear, be careful of news versus noise, but was this actually news? Yeah, uh, I don't think it's really an insult to Moncada, who, after all, was the number one rated prospect going into last year, um, as it is an endorsement and an affirmation of of Devers. And as you say, when a good organization makes that decision, I think that it's worth paying attention to, and it's you know it's reinforcement for for what I for my high opinion of Devers. Moving along, uh, I freely admit, Gene, I don't know what to make of Danny Duffy after the last few years. What's your assessment? Well, I freely admit that I don't either. Um, but based on, on what I've seen on the mound and uh, and what I've heard on the street, um, he's a number four SP. Um, he's capable of having a really good year. Um, if he goes into alcohol rehab, then, then it's shot. Um, but it's still a nice park to pitch in. Um, I think that if you take him as your number four starting pitcher, you haven't risked that much. Um, so that's where I would take him. And I, I kind of like to split the difference with these, with these guys that I really don't know what to make of. And, um, I don't think, I think there's something to be gained and not that much to be lost. If you make him your number four starting pitcher in a mixed league, that is. And a little higher, I suppose, in in an only league. I I think uh, guys like Duffy are an interesting uh, case study in figuring out where the floors and ceilings are, and uh, and basing your decision on when and where to draft guys or to buy guys at auctions based on the assessment of floors and ceilings. So I think you're right that if you manage to get him at a number four starter position, maybe number three and a half in a in a uh, in an only league, then you're sitting comfortably on the floor. 
and there's some ceiling there. But if you have to draft him as a number two and a half starter in an only league or a three in a mixed league, now all of a sudden your back is up against the ceiling and there's not a lot of room to grow. It's possible Danny Duffy could have a tremendous year and end up being like a number one A starter, a two starter. But really, a realistic assessment says, let's figure out where his floor is, let's figure out where his ceiling is, and act accordingly. Yeah, and the other thing is, is in only leagues, I am less likely to take risky players because it seems to me that in only leagues, the last thing you want is a hole. In a mixed league, you can find replacement innings, um, but scraping the, the waiver wire in an AL league is hard to do. Um, so I downgrade the injury-prone guys and the the uncertain guys like Danny Duffy in, in those leagues. So, yeah, I, I, I have almost no chance to get him, I don't think, in an AL league. But in, in, in a mixed league, I'm a little more inclined to take a shot. You're much more positive about Toronto right-hander Marco Estrada than most. Uh, why is that? And I think I know. Well, I mean, the, the outfield defense on the Toronto corners was atrocious last year, and he's a big fly ball pitcher, and he needs that. Um, you could see it in his doubles allowed, and I think that's going to drop down to his customary, you know, thirty-nine forty instead of over fifty, and that's all it's going to take for him. Um, people don't trust him because he's not an overpowering pitcher, uh, but he's a good pitcher and he knows how to pitch and he throws the four seamer above their hands and the change up down on the dirt and they, um, he's an effective pitcher and where he's going now. Um, there's no risk at all in taking him. And so, you know, to fill out as rotation filler, I think he's about as good as you can get. And we've talked before about the uh, advantages and disadvantages of extreme flyball pitchers. I like Marco Estrada a lot as well. It seems for the last couple of seasons, there's been a groundswell of tout support for Kevin Gausman of the Orioles, and he's never quite measured up. Once again, I'm starting to see the uh, buzz about Kevin Gausman. He's going to be the sleeper. He's going to be a guy you need. Uh, what do you think? Well, I mean, it can happen, um, but it hasn't happened. I know he had a good second half last year. But he had a good second half in 2016, too. And despite the fact that he had a good second half last year, he still got torched a few times in the second half. And that's that's his risk. He's not there yet. I mean, if you can take him in a, take him in a draft or in an auction where, you know, at a speculation price, sure, go ahead and take it. But... You know, I agree with you. I mean, it seems that as time goes on, the hype builds and builds on certain players, and he's one of them. And I think that he's just going to price himself out of my market anyway. Make him do it first, I think. Uh, last year, Marwin Gonzalez was a pleasant surprise, especially with some unexpected power. And uh, I guess you got to like that. But you have a, a concern about Marwin Gonzalez. What's the issue here? Well, he's a great fastball hitter. He's elite against the fastball, and uh, but he's not so good against the other pitches. And the whole trend in baseball is towards throwing fewer fastballs. And I think after what he did, after getting a look at him in the postseason, I think that he's going to see even fewer fastballs this year. Um, so I like him. I think he's a you know he's a fine player, and the versatility is certainly appeals. But I think the chances are high that we've seen his best. He qualifies at first, second, short, and outfield, and in 15-game qualifying leagues, also at third. How much do you add value to the flexibility? Generally, I add a buck for every uh, position he plays if the player is good, um, which he is. But I see sometimes where where players have value added to them when they're not really that good, and 
I don't see the advantage of um, hurting you in any one of six roster slots. Um, the player's got to be good to have value added to him at all. But once he is, I think basic roughly a buck per extra position is a, is a good thing and a factor in you know in in these days of high injuries. So. Also a factor in these days of shortened benches. I wonder, we talked about the lack of availability of players in, in only leagues. Do you give an extra boost for this position flexibility in an American League only setup? Because, boy, if you think finding a pitcher is hard on the waiver wire, try finding a hitter. Yeah. Oh, I know. Um, thing is, is if a guy is hurt, you still have to, um, you still have to fill a hole somewhere. Um, and so I, I don't think it really matters that much in AL leagues. You know, if Marvin, Marlon Gonzalez can slot in for your injured guy here, you still have to fill in with somebody there. Um, so, I mean, I think the real lesson to, to what you're talking about is pay extra attention to your bench picks, your reserve picks, because you're going to need them. Your comment on D. Gordon might be an exception to your rule about amassing players with OPSs over 800. Uh, explain how that works. Well, yeah, I mean, at his level, I mean, and I would make it 900, say for the first 150 players off the board, I mean, to me, there are about 75 players who are capable of posting a 900 OPS, um, granting that only about 25 of them are actually going to do it, and then a few guys that we don't consider will also do it. Um, so I think that every single player you draft before 150 players should be gone, should have a reasonable chance of posting a 900 OPS. Um, the only exceptions to that would be a guy like D. Gordon, who's giving you three very good to excellent categories. Um, you know, he's got he's to score the runs, he's got to hit for the batting average, and he's got to steal the bases. Um, this year, I think he's the only exception to it, um, if you grant that Trey Turner is, is, is a different kind of class of, of player, and that he... You know, his OPS will probably get over 800, although I'm not deliriously confident that he'll do that. But, uh, you know, because he's going to steal 60 bases and hit 50 home run, 15 home runs, and for a good average, he's a first-round player. Um, I understand that. He's not my ideal first-round player. But, you know, D. Gordon is the only other player um, right now who fits that bill. Um the other speed guys are not are too too shaky in batting average or or in runs scored to uh, to really consider before 150 players are gone. I presume that Billy Hamilton fits that category as well uh, of guys who have that one big skill. But other than that, there's not enough going on there. In fact, in your comment about Billy Hamilton, you described him as not a hitter. What did that mean? Well, he's not. I mean, he's a potential base runner. That's that's his function. Um, with most hitters, their job is to square up the baseball and and smack it around the ballpark. But no, with Billy Hamilton, his job is to hit choppers and bloops and do whatever he can. Get hit by pitches and walk and do those things that he doesn't do very well um, to get on base. That's his job. He's not, you know. If he when he hits a home run, it's a bad thing, because you know then he thinks he can hit home runs. No, you know, go back to Vince Coleman and Willie Wilson, and that's what Billy Hamilton should be doing. Not, you know, not trying to uh, to square up the baseball and get his hard hit rate up. 
No, he wants his soft hit rate up. Big differences of opinion in the tout world about Aaron Judge, whether he can repeat. He's got the big swing, a lot of strikeouts, a lot of walks. Uh, seems like uh, he's been going late first, early second round in a lot of drafts that I've been watching. What's your position on Aaron Judge for 2018? Well, I don't know why people keep looking for things that, you know, I mean, we know what he is. I mean, he's a, he's a high-quality, high-strikeout, high-fly-ball fly hitter in a great park to hit in. Um, he's, I think he's going to streak his streak and slump his way to 270 with at least 45 home runs. I don't think this is a very difficult one. I think people are making it harder on themselves. Um, yeah, there is some batting average risk with him, um, but I don't think it's, think it's extreme. Um, I can't see him hitting much under 250 um, based on what he's done um, and based on the fact that he can hit him out to all fields, uh, which means he can also hit doubles to all fields, um, especially in an on-base percentage league. To me, he's definitely a first-rounder. Your comment on John Lester didn't focus so much on his ability to throw the ball to the plate as his inability to throw the ball to first to keep runners close. Uh, you were quite vituperative about this. Why is it such a big issue? Because I'm a baseball fan. Because um, I like to see the game played right. And this is a glaring flaw. I know it doesn't mean that much, but it's a glaring flaw and it should be exploited. And the fact that teams do not exploit it, to me, is a sin against competition. Um, you know, if he played in the 80s, every bad guy that got on first base would have been standing on third two pitches later. And he would have been run out of the game. And But they let him get away with it. And, it, it, you know, I know it's not rational. This is the only... I try to be a rational man. I can't be rational with him because I see... I just watch him pitch and I say, run, run! Um, so I can't be objective about him. I mean, I think people should probably pay $20 for him, but he's not going to be on any of my teams because it just it drives me crazy to watch him pitch. So, you know, there's enough aggravation in this world. I'm not going to add up voluntarily. How about uh, Andrew McCutcheon? As I said in Wise Guy, um, for two months last year, he, he posted an 1150 OPS. Uh, only a great player can do that. Um, maybe... The big slump is now part of his game, um, but still you add it up, and he's, he's got a lot of game. Um, I think the change of scenery will do him good. Um, it's not a better park to hit in, um, but the lineup is decent, um, relatively speaking. Um, he's, he's still got his speed. He's lost a step, but according to the you know, sprint speed, um, he's faster than Starling Marte. Um, he can definitely steal 20 bases if he wants to, and I think he will, uh, because Bochi, you know, Bochi's not a running manager. He's not an anti-running manager. He's a good manager who manages according to his personnel, and recognizing that McCutcheon has that ability, I think you're going to see it. So I think he's going to hit 25 home runs and steal 20 bases, and his average is going to, you know, he's a smart enough hitter to, um, to adapt to the ballpark and say, okay, let me hit some doubles and triples instead of trying to knock it out of the park. Um, he'll still hit his home runs on the road, so maybe he'll go, you know, decline to twenty homers. So he's a twenty twenty guy with a with a good batting average. He'll hit in the middle of the lineup. And the other thing about McCutcheon is is that he is on every single pitch. He knows how to play the game right. 
he gives himself every possible edge. Now, sabermetrically, that might not mean that much, but it definitely means something. Um, any player who's given himself every possible edge is a guy that I want, and especially if he's not overpriced, and McCutcheon is not overpriced. We talked earlier about some uh, calibration of guys who had big years. Uh, Whit Merrifield really came out of nowhere to have a terrific year last year for the Royals. And you said we should have seen this coming, and I think it's a real important object lesson. What, what was your point there? I don't know about seeing it coming, um, but we should always pay attention to when an organization likes a player. And this organization liked Merrifield. Prospect watchers didn't like him, but the Royals definitely did, and that means something. I mean, you should always, it doesn't, it's not a definitive statement. But it does mean we should be paying. We should pay attention to this. And he, he didn't even start in the majors last year, uh, but he was up quickly and and he did his thing. And that's this is what he is. Um, the Royals knew something that the that the prospect watchers did not know. Um, I guess they have good scouts um, because he's a good hitter. And I don't think he's a superstar or anything, but I think he's going to be Brandon Phillips for a few years. And you know. Lord knows that's a valuable player in, in, in your league. Do you see anybody in 2018 among the prospect ranks who could be this year's Whit Merrifield? Yeah, I, I, a couple of guys, and um, they're both named Wade. Um, Lamont Wade and Tyler Wade. Um, neither one of them, um, Lamont is on the Twins and Tyler's on the Yankees. And uh, um, these are guys who are not high on prospect lists but have shown ability in the minors. Um, Lamont has more strikeouts, uh, more walks than strikeouts in his, in his minor league career so far. He's going to make the majors. He's not a big power speed guy. He's a little power speed guy, but he's going to hit for some average, and the power could develop. Um, Tyler Wade is a guy who um, he struggled in the majors, but he's, as he moved up in the minors, he's gotten better and better. Um, people aren't talking about these kind of guys, but clearly the organizations like them. And so, definitely worth an eye. Eduardo Nunez just re-signed with Boston. Uh, of course, another flexibility guy, give you some positional uh, balance, but also a real injury risk. And I, w- I wonder, Gene, when you look at a guy like Eduardo Nunez, who's a pretty good fantasy contributor when he's on the field, the trouble is he's off the field so often. How do you square that circle? I've kind of changed my mind on this, um, especially in mixed leagues, is that as long as the guy's healthy going into the season, I'm more inclined to take a chance with him this year because you've got to take some chances. Um, now, he's a little bit of a different case because he doesn't have a regular job. Um, you still have to figure he's going to get, you know, he's on, and he's on a really good team, too. So all his playing time looks like it's going to come from injuries and, and the occasional rest. So it's possible that he doesn't get more than 300 at-bats. Now, if he gets lucky, he can get 500 at-bats, but... Generally speaking, with the type, I'm more inclined to go with them in mixed leagues. Leave them alone in only leagues because their playing time is just too unpredictable. But take the skills while you can get them if the guy's got a job and he's healthy going into the season. Gene, I really liked your uh, takeout on Shoei Otani. Somewhere between Babe Ruth and Tim Lawler, you said, made me laugh out loud, as much of your writing does. But seriously, what do you think about Otani's chances to be a legitimate two-way player and a two-way fantasy asset? We're in uncharted territory here, and I want to give a shout-out to Michael Cohn, who wrote the, um, 
the bulk of the Otani comment in Wise Guy Baseball. He's lived in Japan for 20 years, and he follows the game there, and he knows he knows the game inside out, and he's been almost dead right on every single Japanese player coming over. The only guy he missed was Matt, uh, Matt Suzaka, and there were kind of other issues there. Um, but he thinks that, you know, he thinks that Otani's going to be an elite pitcher with a chance to be a good hitter, too. Um, I'm going to stick with that. Um, I think it's really great for the game that, that there's the chance that this guy is going to actually be a legitimate two-way player. Um, but I'm not sure about how many at-bats he's going to get. Um, so I think for this year, I think the best thing to do is to treat him as a pitcher, as a good pitcher, if not elite. I don't think it's right to treat anybody as elite before they're throwing a pitch in the major leagues. But, uh, I mean, I think he's shown enough there, and, you know, we, we've seen his stuff, we've seen his motion, we know that he's, that he's a really good pitcher. Um, so I think it's safe to bet him as a good pitcher. As far as getting him as a hitter is concerned, I think the jury is still out. I hope that it works out, but not something I would bet on the, on the bat. Well, we did mention uh, watching what the organization does and how it handles its people. They traded C.J. Crone, their first baseman, apparently to make room for uh, Pujols to step back at first base and to give uh, Otani all the uh, DH at-bats that uh, would have otherwise been soaked up. Does that fill you with any kind of added confidence about Otani's uh, prospects as a hitter? Yes. Um, also the fact that the Angels are an extremely right-handed hitting lineup. The only left-handed hitter they've got is Calhoun. Um, so they're they're going to be looking to get. I figure that Otani will DH against almost all righties, and that's good. Um, so, but you know, as far as betting him as a star is concerned, offensively, I think it's premature to do that. Um, he's got to have some swing and miss in his game, and the major league pitchers are are going to be better than the than the Japanese pitchers. So, I think it's probably safe to bet him as a as a moderate power guy. But until we've seen evidence, I'm not going to bet him as any kind of offensive star. Earlier you talked about sprint speed, which is a new on-field metric that I guess we get from the camera tracking of all the action on the field. What is the issue with the sprint speed stat and how all new stats get integrated into our thinking? Well, I mean, there are an awful lot of surprises on the list, on the sprint speed list. And I think that with all new stats, what you want to do is you want to give them some time to... to um, you know, settle in. Um, you know, velocity, pitcher's velocity is also a raw skill like speed. You know, speed is something that we say, well, you know, I can watch the guy, he's really fast, I can see that. Um, and that's true, but I think that there's going to be some variation. I mean, these are small differences here. Injuries, um, age, there's going to be some differences. You see pitchers increase their velocity and decrease their velocity both ways every year. Um, and that's a raw skill too. So I think that you know before treating it as as the new gospel, let's see it over time. I agree with that uh, assessment. I think the the difficulty with all of these exciting new things, launch angle and uh, batted ball velocity, and all these kind of things, is how do they map to the things we really care about? And I, I think sometimes we get a little bit ahead of of the. Uh, of the actual meaning because we're so excited to just use the stat. And so-and-so averages, this is just one example, Gene, but I read all the time that such-and-such a hitter averages whatever his batted ball velocity is. And what strikes me is, but there's different ways of arriving at averages. You know, if, if the guy is always around 91, that's really good. 
But if his average is made up of uh, a whole bunch of 60s and a handful of 110s, that's not so good because it just doesn't happen often enough. Do you know what I mean? And, and I think you're right. I think sometimes we have to wait and see uh, how these stats can be manipulated or applied to the things that we actually care about. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the opposite was true with, um, with the old PQS thing, is that you, know, you were looking for a pitcher who, was, uh, who had the domination potential. Um, you know, they, it's, it's not a really fantastic predictive skill, uh, predictive stat, but it is interesting, and it does have some predictive value. If you see this guy, yes, he can dominate. Um, I think the same thing is true with a pitcher. If, with a hitter, um, you know, you said the guy's with one tens in the 60s. Well, you know, it's a question of, is he capable of accentuating the positive and eliminating the negative? Um, but then again, if you have a guy who's averaging... 91 and he's really around 91 that means he's a good hitter exactly right yep uh speaking of good hitters you like justin smoke to repeat his power breakout from 2017 why well he changed his approach last year and it worked um you know he's going to be streaky like all the high k fly ball hitters um he increased his walk rate um i think that again puts a floor under his runs um I think we should pay attention to when a guy, um, when a guy announces that he's changing his 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 approach and it, and it works. Um, that's not noise to me. That's news. He's gonna, you know, I think he'll be down a little bit, um, but I think you know he also was a highly regarded prospect back in the day. So it's not like it really came out of nowhere. It's just a question of growing into his game and realizing what he's doing, and you know, becoming more of a professional hitter. Stop being so stubborn and. You know, play the game. The you know he saw an opportunity for himself, and he and he exploited it. And that's really what we're looking to see. You know. Yeah, and I remember when he uh, started approaching thirty home runs last year. Everybody was saying that this was this huge surprise, but I think he actually hit thirty home runs a few years earlier, and it just kind of got lost in the general sort of shuffling that he did after that thirty home run season, where you know he he sets a thirty home run floor under himself and then follows it up with two or three years of fourteen, fifteen, partly because of playing time. And all of a sudden, everybody forgets the 30 that he hit and says, well, now this is the new normal, and I understand that. But uh, I, to me, a, a guy who hits 30 home runs even once in the major leagues or you know, hits 320 or, or does anything outstanding is always uh, a guy who has the potential to do it again. Right, I agree. And also, I mean, he slumped at the end last year, and I think he just ran out of gas. Um, but you know, speaking of news and noise, one of the things to watch this year is to see in interviews if he said anything about working on his endurance over the winter. Um, because, you know, a guy like him is, you know, he's a high strikeout or lower. It was lower, but he's still a high strikeout fly ball hitter. He's going to be streaky. Um, if he took steps over the, over the winter to work on his durability, I think that's an extra plus sign. And it just, you know, then the slump in September is one of those things that just happens in the course of a season to that type of hitter. Um, and where he's going, he's not a big risk. I don't think so. You know, you can get him as a corner infield if you reach a little bit in uh, in a mixed league, and that's fantastic. I think. And finally, Gene, you say Justin Verlander killed your tout team last year with his slow start, but by the end of the season, he was, and I quote you, like the perfect pitcher, especially in the World Series. Should owners bid on the perfect pitcher, Justin Verlander, or the slow starting team killer, Justin Verlander? 
answer is lies in his last appearance in the World Series in which he threw 10 cutters, which he had hardly thrown all year, and they were very effective. Um, to me, the thing with Verlander is he ramps up his intensity as the years go, not his velocity so much, but his competitive intensity, and I would dearly love to see him stop trying to build his way up and just come blaze, blazing out of the gate and do the best he can um, for as long as he can. Maybe it wouldn't work, um, but, you know, he'd hardly be the first pitcher who, who, you know, who maintained an intensity level for a whole season. Um, I'd like to see him try to do it. As far as bidding for him, I, I think it's probably okay to treat him as an ace. He's another guy who's going to, you know, he's going to be out there. He's going to be, you know, in the innings leaders to the best of his ability. And between that and the fact that he's likely to throw a few more of those really good cutters, um, I think maybe bump him up a couple of spots. Okay, Gene, uh, that was terrific as always. We'll have you back a little later in the show to talk about some of your game commentaries in the Wise Guy Baseball Annual and to get some of your nabbers and slabbers for the coming season. Talk to you again in a few minutes. Okay, thanks a lot, Patrick. Gene McCaffrey is the Wise Guy of Fantasy Baseball. He writes regularly at his wiseguybaseball.com website, and he's the author of the Wise Guy Baseball 2018 Annual. Gene will be back a little later on. Coming up, our Baseball HQ Radio Market Watch segments. Harold Nichols has the National League News. Jock Thompson has the American League. It's all coming up. Stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. The 1-1 swing and a drive to deep left field. It's got a chance. Upton going back. It's going to go. Home run, Bartolo Colon. Repeating, home run, Bartolo Colon. Seven-line army in right field might tear this ballpark down. Cologne carried his bat with him until he was about 10 feet from first base. He's taking the slowest home run trot you've ever seen. He just got to Tim Tuffle, the third base coach. He is approaching home plate. He touches home plate with his first major league home run. And they are going to give him a silent treatment in the dugout. They have vacated. The Mets have left the building. Bartolo Colon is the loneliest man in San Diego as he reaches the Mets dugout after hitting a home run and there's nobody there to greet him. And now here they come up the dugout steps. Wow. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our News Watch segments. We'll have Jock Thompson with news from the American League coming up in a few minutes, but let's get the presses rolling with the National League. And it's a pleasure to say hello to one of the only guys who's been with HQ Radio since it started way back in the dead ball era. Harold Nichols, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio for 2018. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Good to get another season started. Uh, You are one of the originals on the show. Am I right on that? I think I might be. Yeah, I think so. I think it's you, me, and Rob Gordon. Uh, we're, we're on that very first show. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Right. The, uh, the aged veterans of the, uh, baseball HQ radio ball club. Uh, let's start with the biggest news I think so far in the national league, uh, in the off season, uh, you Darvish, a big right-hander so- signed with Chicago, a six year deal with some opt outs and so forth. But, uh, of course, anytime somebody signs, there's a uh, roster ramifications. So what's going to be going on with you Darvish in Chicago? Well, you know, clearly it becomes some one of those things where where Jacob Reed is going to be allowed to to go somewhere else, and you Darvish quickly becomes their uh, their number one pitcher. I, you know, and this this is it's interesting that uh, I saw somewhere, and I, I uh, that that his 
his ERA against the uh, National League Central is is really quite quite phenomenal. I don't know how many games he's actually pitched against them, but it was down around two or something like that. So if they were looking at that, they made a good choice. I think Hugh Darvish is probably a good a good choice for for the Cubs to lead their their rotation. He had a uh, a good season last year. Struggled, of course, in the uh, in the World Series, um, but there's all kinds of uh, of ramifications that he might have been tipping his pitches, and I I wouldn't be at all surprised given uh, how badly he actually struggled in that uh, in that situation. But first half last season, a 3.11 ERA, uh, 3.71 xERA, uh, 110 BPV. So still a very solid kind of pitcher. Certainly the kind of guy who can head the Cubs rotation. Yeah, the one thing that struck me about the deal when I looked at it was. Uh, I'd be a little worried about his durability. Of course, he missed all of 2015 with Tommy John surgery. And over those, counting that year, that missed year, he's only had 400 innings in the last four years, including a 100 innings in 2016. That was partly because of that same surgery. 187 last year, which should be a little bit reassuring, but then you tag on those extra innings in, in the playoffs and those really bad innings in the World Series. Do you think the Cubs have reason to be uh, concerned about this? I think if I were the Cubs, I'd certainly be cautious. I mean, coming off of the surgery, frequently a guy is is uh, at his best second year back from TJ surgery, uh, and that would really be what we're looking at here. So uh, perhaps that the Cubs were looking at that and thinking that uh, he may be even better this year than he was a year ago. But at his age and given the, the number of innings on his arm, uh, I'd certainly be careful with him if I were the Cubs. And that has ramifications for him as a fantasy asset, too. If uh, Chicago decides that they're going to have him skip three starts during the year or give him one of those 10-day Dodger vacations that we've heard so much about on the DL, then there's a possibility here that if they think they're going into the playoffs, especially if they have aspirations that way, and I think we all agree that they do, that it could be a situation where 187 innings last year seems like a lot. It could be down at 160 this year just because they're babying him along, hoping to keep him fresh and ready to go all all the way through October, right? And if they, I'm sure they took uh, took uh, careful note of what happened uh, this past October with him. So, uh, if they're hoping for that, they may indeed want to make sure there's still some innings left in his arm by the time they reach October. Now, does the move to Chicago affect him parkwise? I, you know, I don't think it really does much. Uh, Chicago was probably a little better better hitting park than he was in in Los Angeles, but certainly not than he was in in Texas. So, I don't see much of a real effect on a, a park effect. Uh, going into Wrigley Field. The reason I ask is because over the last three years, in 2014, a very good 0.8 home runs per nine innings, then 1.1 when he came back in 2016, and last year all the way up to 1.3. And that was uh, not in uh, really in too homerific of parks. Is this this rising home run rate an issue? Well, it certainly is a concern. It's something you have to keep uh, keep an eye on and wonder if... uh if that rising home rate run rate is something that's uh, uh, that's going to become chronic, although if you look back at last season, that that home run weight that 1.3 was made up of a 1.1 in the first half and a 1.6 in the second half. So, not not exactly sure how that happened. Whether that was just uh, just a matter of bad luck in the second half and a, and a high uh, a high uh, home run per fly ratio uh, might have been the cause of that, and, and perhaps that could come back down. And one last thing that I noticed too is uh, 2013, 14, 16, his DOM rates all above 11 strikeouts per nine innings last year, barely over 10. And to me, Nick, that's another red flag. I'd be very leery about bidding on you, Darvish, at the price I expect him to fetch at the table. Yeah, I think I agree with you. He's going to fetch a, a huge price at the table. And at that point, I would be very nervous.
The other big signing uh, just a couple of days ago, Eric Hosmer finally got a contract. He's moving to San Diego. Not a bad place to end up. Uh, what do you think of Eric Hosmer as a Padre? You know, I don't think there are going to be huge park effects with Eric Hosmer moving moving into uh, uh, into San Diego, but you're, you've got to be a little bit cautious here. I mean, Eric Hosmer had a breakout season a year ago, and the question is, is he able to sustain that kind of production um, as he as he becomes uh, as he ages? I mean, he's 28 this year. That's still a good peak year. 29 next year, still a pretty good peak year. But I would be very cautious about Eric Hosmer. Um, what we're looking at was a 318 batting average, a 318 batting average a year ago, and that drove a whole lot of his value. Um, and the question is, can he can he really sustain that kind of batting average? Um, I wonder. That was a a career high for him a year ago. He's always been a very very good hitter, but you have to wonder if uh, he's not going to settle back down just to under 300, maybe around 290, 295 in that area, and that can make a difference. Still in all, his hit rate was only 35%, which is in line with a lot of the years that he's had since 2013. And uh, the the word on him, and this is something that's kind of outside the realm of stats, Nick, is that this is a guy who's just a really good hitter, and he's adapting as he goes along and as his, as his career moves along. He's becoming a better, smarter hitter at the plate. I don't know. Do you buy that kind of story? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's certainly that's certainly possible. And this is this is a guy who's always been a very a very good hitter. And so the other thing to consider, of course, is as we're talking about these numbers, you know, two ninety in today's game is a uh, uh, a really nice batting average. If you can hit two ninety and hit twenty five home runs and drive in a hundred, uh, you're doing pretty well. And it may be worth a lot more than a guy who hits two hundred and and uh, has forty home runs like uh, Joey Gallo. Something else that jumps out at me about Eric Hosmer, a 22% fly ball rate. Uh, for the last three years, he's been 24, 25, 22. That's a very low fly ball rate, and it kind of puts the lie to those 25 home runs he's had the last couple of years. But on the other hand, Nick, if he does it two years in a row, who's to say he can't do it a third year in a row? We're projecting 20. Well, that's, a, that's in fact possible. Maybe he could do it a third year in a row. But the thing to look at, certainly about Hosmer, is, as you mentioned, the fly ball rate is is low. Uh, his power index has never been um, above league, well above league average maybe in 2015, but only 102 uh, a power index. So this is a guy who doesn't have a ton of power and has a, a consistently a ground ball rate uh, above 50 percent uh, every single year in the majors. A ground ball rate of 50 percent or higher, uh, and so he, he doesn't hit a lot of balls in the air, and that could certainly affect him in San Diego. One last thing about Eric Hosmer. In 2013, his hard contact index was 129, so he's 29% above league average. And in the succeeding years, straight downhill, 117, 116, 109, and then 99 last year, which is under league average. Again, to me, this looks like something that you have to be concerned about before you place a bid or or, uh, use a round, an early round on Eric Hosmer. Yeah, I think definitely you need to be concerned about that. I mean, there are guys guys out there, if if you're looking at a first baseman, who may have more of the kinds of skills you're looking for, depending upon what you want out of your first baseman than Eric Cosmer does. And of course, his vaunted uh, leadership skills and all those other intangibles don't help you much in fantasy. Uh, while we're in San Diego, of course, Will Myers had been playing first base and pretty successfully. Uh, of course, he's going to have to move to the outfield with the uh, arrival of Eric Hosmer. Uh, any, what do you think of Will Myers making that position move? And are there any other roster issues that arise because of people being pushed around with Hosmer taking up first base? You know, it's hard to tell. I mean, before before. 
Myers converted to first base. He had uh, a number of DL days while he was trying to play the outfield. And so I think the risk on, on Will Myers goes up when he's playing the outfield as opposed to first base. And that may be something that, uh, uh, that, that the Padres have sort of forgotten about. Uh, but, but it certainly is an issue. Um, so I, yeah, I, I think, I think you've got to be careful with Myers as an outfielder. I really do. I, I think there's a certainly a 184 DL days between 2014 and 15 before he converted to first base. Uh, and that I think has got to be a concern. Yeah, I seem to remember that one of his injuries was just crashing into the wall and breaking his wrist or his forearm or something like that because he's uh, one of those uh, all-or-nothing type players out there and not super skilled as an outfielder, which raises the risk level because a guy who's willing to run into walls, you know, it's one thing if you're Mike Trout and you're running into walls, but you're big and strong and you know how to angle your way in there. It's another thing when you're Will Myers and you're kind of just crashing into walls like uh, Evil Knievel out there. Uh, we have some other guys who are kind of tipped to maybe have some outfield playing time. Uh, Jose Perella, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Franchi Cordero, who looked pretty good last year, Corey Spangenberg. Looks like all these guys t- uh, figure to lose playing time or maybe not even make the club. Yeah, I think that's certainly possible. I mean, you've got to, the, 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 the bounce back of Myers going to the outfield is going to reduce playing time for all those guys you mentioned. And uh, I, I would not be drafting them. Arizona added a couple of outfielders to take the place of J.D. Martinez, who's off to Boston, as we know. Uh, first, uh, they signed Gerard Dyson. Yeah, the, you know, the Dyson signing is an interesting one. You know, they're, we're talking about they're, they're adding a humidor in Arizona, and the Dyson signing would almost seem to be an acknowledgement of we, maybe we need a little, uh, we could do with a little less power and a little more speed. But Dyson's kind of an interesting guy. He can play all over the outfield he does add that element of speed he's the kind of guy who can get a whole lot of value just coming into into the game as a uh, uh as an extra outfielder or as a pinch runner um i think it was an interesting signing for arizona uh certainly the uh the park is not going to hurt him any in terms of, of what he does and uh i like that signing uh actually in terms of uh in terms of what they've done and and he will find his playing time i mean he's a unique enough guy in that atmosphere that the playing time for Dyson is going to happen, whether he's in there as a regular to start the season or not. One of the interesting things that Rob Carroll of Baseball HQ mentioned in his analysis of the Dyson signing is that uh, Gerard Dyson has finished exactly 10th among Major League stolen base leaders each of the last three seasons, and he's 84 for 101 during that time period. And boy, 84 percent basically is a is a really good number on the other hand his speed scores uh, has been declining his uh, stolen base opportunities have been declining for seattle the last couple of years uh, so there's still some speed skill here i guess the question is are the diamondbacks going to let him exploit it to fantasy advantage i think that's the, that is the question you would think that uh, if they were going to go ahead and make that kind of signing they would do that but then you know you never know He's also pretty weak against uh, batting uh, against left-handed pitching, so he seems like a pretty natural guy for a platoon, and that brings us to another signing, and I wonder if you thought this was as odd as I did. After signing Dyson, and they've already got outfielders out there, David Peralta, they got A.J. Pollock, they've got, uh, they've got choices out there, and then they go pick up Dyson to replace Martinez, fair enough. Then they go and trade for Steven Souza. What did you make of that? I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what to make of that, honestly. Um... I, you know, I thought they looked pretty pretty well set once they'd signed Dyson, but maybe they're thinking that they, they've got some outfielders who are kind of brittle. Pollock especially is a um, 
uh, a very good center fielder and, and a guy that could wind up being a real star if he can get a full season with bats under his belt. But that last if is a big one with Pollock. He's been hurt so much. And maybe this, the Dyson signing is a backup for A.J. Pollock, uh, assuming the guy might get hurt again, which uh, if I were the Diamondbacks, I wouldn't be putting a lot of eggs into the A.J. Pollock basket and say we're going to win because he's going to make it all the way through the season. So that could have something to do with that. Um, Sousa... You know, Steven Sousa is a guy that never has excited me a lot. Uh, and I think the, the the reason to look at it, if you look at, yeah, the guy hit some home runs, and yeah, he steals some bases, but his batting average is not at all good. And really, last year, Steven Sousa had a career year. We're looking at, uh, at 30 home runs, at 16 stolen bases, but the batting average was down below 240, 239. His highest batting average is 247. So... I have a real question about that signing. I wonder if the guy will ever push $20 roto value. Um, it, it, it's not a signing that I would be uh, really jumping all over if I were a National League uh, fantasy owner. Yeah, this is one of those uh, incidents where you have the potential for recency bias to carry a price tag out of proportion to what you should really, really be expecting here. He's a $17 player last year, but as you say, that was – twice as many home runs as he'd ever hit, pretty much twice as many stolen bases as he'd ever captured, and he still had that low batting average. Now, last year, he also had a, a pretty big on-base percentage, if your league happens to play that much better rule, a 350 on-base percentage is very good. And really, if he hits 240, that's the new 270, right? I mean, it used to be that you're looking for those 265, 270 guys to be league average. Now we know that it's 245, 250, so he's not really killing you in that department. And the one good thing about this skill set is uh, after a 7% walk rate in 2016, he bounced back all the way to 14%, which is more in line with his uh, with his career norms you know a guy who draws walks that's always a good thing right very definitely that is and that's one of the skills that Sousa has has been able to show is that is that that on base percentage but uh you know I think the other there's some real ramifications of that signing in terms of other other players I think or that deal in terms of other players on the Arizona roster um you've got Yasmani Tomas who now is uh, really pinched uh, if the Dyson signing seemed to pinch him into a a uh, platoon role on the bad side of a platoon uh, I'm not sure where he is now. The the uh, uh, San Diego manager described him as a blank canvas who will have to earn everything. Uh, and a player with that kind of a tag going into uh, the start of a season is not somebody I'd be looking at on my roster. So, yes, Manny Tomas is falling way down my draft boards. Uh, and the other thing it did was, with Brandon Drury was sent, was sent packing is that Chris Owings is now pretty well entrenched as the starting second baseman. Yeah, that is uh, some... some uh newfound certainty in the infield in Arizona, which is going to be a good thing for draft planning and so forth. And Chris Owings, not a bad little fantasy player either. No, not at all. I mean, he was he was off to a real tear in the first half uh, last year and went into a little bit of a slump before he got hurt. But, uh, uh, you know, there's a, we're looking at a guy who could, could, could he potentially hit 20-20 and, and get close to 300 batting average. The first half last year looked like it. Uh, so, uh, it's, it's at this point, we don't, we don't know. And we're not sure, I guess what, what the, we've really got in Chris Owens, but it looks like he could be a very nice fantasy player, especially in the middle infield. Arizona also busy behind the plate. They added catcher Alex Avila. Alex Avila, Nick is a player I've always liked in a, especially as if you can pick him up as a second catcher. He's been terrific. Yeah. Alex Avila has been terrific. And so I really like the move, uh, from Alex Avila to, uh, uh, to Arizona, uh, somebody that I think could uh, 
could really be a very nice second catcher. He's been, been a little bit up and down uh, historically, and that's been the, the, the knock on him, but he's only 31 years old, and we talk about uh, about catchers kind of blossoming late. So I could see Alex Avila last year, 13 home runs, 263 batting average, uh, not really tearing things up. Hasn't been really great since 2011 when he had 19 home runs and a 295 batting average. But I can see that happening again, especially in uh, in Arizona. Of course, the humidor now comes into effect uh, with Alex Avila a full blast. Nick, uh, the signing of Avila adds uh, to a two-man race that was already forming up with Chris Herman and Jeff Mathis. How do you see that shaping up? Well, you know, I think Avila clearly becomes at this point the primary catcher, and those other two guys are looking at the at the backup role. Uh, and I, I think certainly that's what uh, in signing Avila, that's what um, what Arizona is looking at, hoping that they'll have a primary catcher in Avila who will be a real uh, offensive uh, contributor to their lineup. It, does that concern you, a lifetime or a career backup catcher uh, moving up to that top role? There's you know there's um, stamina issues, there's playing time issues. It's catching's hard. It is catching very hard. Uh, you know, we, we've always said that uh, catchers tend to blossom in their 30s, and Alex Avila is now 31. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe he'll uh, th- this will happen. Last year, 308 at-bats, which is not bad. Uh, 390 at-bats in 2014, 330 at-bats in 2013. So I think that's what I'd be counting on from Alex Avila is no more than about 300 at-bats, uh, which does leave some at-bats there for the second catcher. No, oh, five or six dollar player. Uh, one thing we should point out: if you are in an on-base percentage league, Alex Avila's terrific in that department. Sixteen, seventeen percent walk rates, pretty consistently. He can really get on base. Yeah, he can. Uh, you know, a good a good batting eye uh, can can certainly get on base. And if you're in an, an uh, on-base league, he can really help you. Having said that, strikes out a lot, so you're not going to get a lot of RBIs. Uh, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out with uh, your first appearance of the year on Baseball HQ Radio. Look forward to talking with you all season long. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has been our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio since 1847. Now it's time for the American League. Let's go over and talk with BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be back. It's great to have you, and as we get towards spring training games, let's run down some of the latest news. The free agent dam seems to be starting to crack or even burst a little bit. Uh, J.D. Martinez, the big name, of course, signs with Boston, as everybody said he was going to. They had a little bit of a uh, minuet going there for a couple of months while they tried to iron out the deal. Looks like he's going to DH there. What are the ramifications in Boston of J.D. Martinez's signing? I think it's all good for J.D., uh, both counting stat-wise and and even in a park uh, that uh, could reduce his home runs by a couple. It's going to inflate his batting average uh, thanks to that short left-field wall. And uh, even though he may lose a few home runs, uh, given his opposite field tendencies, uh, Fenway tends to reduce uh, home runs to lefties by 22%. His power is so good, and the, and the counting stats he's going to generate in that park say this just really shouldn't matter. Uh, the fact that he's going to see most of his time at DH, or it seems like he will, seems to suggest that he might stay healthier. And I just think health right now is the only thing that keeps him from having another really good season. It's pretty clear that J.D. Martinez will be the primary DH in Boston, and that's going to cause some ripple effects, especially for Hanley Ramirez and Mitch Moreland. How's that going to shake out? Yeah, that looks like a first-base job share uh, and an even split almost entering the season. It's going to depend on performances and health. Neither are premium performers. Uh, we have both projected coming in under 400 at-bats. Uh, 
Martinez seeming uh, outfield flexibility and of course injuries and performances could alter things but right now Ramirez and, per, uh, and Moreland look like uh, mediocre batting average 20 home run players and of course 20 home runs isn't what it used to be in fantasy terms. Yeah, it's kind of a baseline for any kind of power to have just 20 home runs. Uh, of course, that's a uh, result of the uh, change in playing time more than it is in skills. Do you make anything of the uh, announcement out of Boston by new manager Alex Cora that Ramirez was going to be the first baseman and was going to hit or is going to hit third in the lineup? Well, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think they're going to keep Ramirez around. Uh, you just, you you know, you never know, but... Uh, uh, I mean, they signed they signed Moreland during the off season, so uh, you got me. It's 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 tough to read Cora's uh, uh, mind here. Uh, uh, obviously, Moreland has uh, the advantage being left-handed. Ramirez is right-handed. Uh, Ramirez probably has a a better career history, but uh, we're talking about looking forward, aren't we? Yes, indeed. Uh, a lot remains to be seen, but uh, certainly J.D. Martinez is going to be a prime target in American League leagues especially, but I believe in mixed leagues as well. This uh, looks like a, a good situation for J.D. Martinez and for the club. Uh, we also saw a really big three-way deal between the Yankees, Tampa, and Arizona, which has altered playing time outlooks, especially for the two American League teams. Let's start with New York. They gave up a couple of minor leaguers, and they get Brandon Drury from Arizona. Playing time today, analyst Matt Dodge on the story. What's going to happen in New York's playing time situation? Yeah, that was kind of a nifty move by Brian Cashman. They have questions as to who's going to be the opening day starter at both third base and second base. Uh, and um, Drury can play both. Uh, it looks like he's going to be the fave to start at, uh, at at third base on opening day, although Cashman still insists there's going to be competition. The Yankees obviously have two uh, pri- primo rookies in uh, Miguel Andahar and uh, Glaber Torres. They don't have a lot of uh, MLB experience. I think four at-bats between them, maybe a little more. They all belong to Andahar. Um, they, they have a chance to, at least an outside shot, to break camp with the club, but it doesn't look like both of them will, certainly now. Um, a lot's going to depend on spring performances. Um, both of these names, are st- they're still excellent prospects, and they should be 2018 factors. Uh, um, Drury's an interesting guy. You know, he had really huge Chase Field home road splits. Uh, he hit 915 in hitter-friendly Chase. Only 639 on the road, and now he goes to Yankee Stadium, which is even more hitter-friendly than Chase is. So uh, uh, maybe his counting stats go up, a few more home runs. Uh, It's going to be interesting to see how the Yankees handle this. And no humidor in uh, Yankee Stadium either. I guess uh, that uh, talking about the humidor with Todd Zola a little bit, but uh, everybody seems to think it'll affect, in a negative way, offensive production for, uh, for Chase Field. So it could be just in time for for uh, Brandon Drury to get out of there. Uh, meanwhile, the Rays give up outfielder Steven Souza. He goes to Arizona to add to their outfield glut. And the Rays also signed free agent outfielder Carlos Gomez to a low-cost deal. How does the outfield situation in Tampa look? They've got a lot of outfielders on the roster. Yeah, they do. They've, they've got a lot of uh, older guys past their primes and, and a few new guys that are coming up. It, it really looks crowded uh, over there. Uh, Gomez projects to start in right field, not as usual center field, thanks to the presence of Kevin Kiermaier. Um, and he moves from Texas to Tampa, and that's not going to help his offense any at all. He still projects at double-digit home runs and stolen bases, which is where his fantasy value lies. But of course, he's had health problems and flagging contact issues, and uh, a Tampa Bay team that seems to have plenty of veteran help and kids looking for a bat say that he's 
going to have to keep earning his at-bats. Uh, the thing he has going for him, and perhaps the reason Tampa made this move, is that uh, he's the only right-handed hitting outfielder in a left-handed left hitting heavy contingent. Uh, so um, he's going to get he's going to get a lot of at-bats with that going for him. Yeah, because of that uh, left-handed uh, tilt that you mentioned, uh, I, I don't like the chances for Denard Spann to catch a lot of playing time. And uh, I wonder about Jake Bowers as well. I guess he could play first base and has done in the past, but uh, I'd, I'd, I'm really curious to see what Tampa's going to do because, you know, in one way, when you have a team like this that has a lot of question marks, depending on, uh, especially when you draft, it's the uncertainty can force prices down. And if you gamble correctly, I think there's maybe some profit to be made here. I wouldn't bet on Span, but I might not mind placing a late bet on Malik Smith. Yeah, well, Smith is, is the guy with the stolen bases, obviously, and that makes him uh, uh, really attractive. I think there's a lot of moving parts here. I think you're going to see uh, some of these names. The veterans obviously get playing time early on. Um, Bauer is going to get some extended playing time at some point during the year, is my guess, unless he completely completely collapses. I mean, uh, Tampa's at the beginning of a reload or a rebuild, and they're, they're not going to just keep him in the minors again for another year. Uh, it's a tough situation to bid on if you're if you're in a draft over league right now and your draft uh, is coming up. Uh, most of these names aren't particularly productive anyway, so uh, it, it's interesting. And of course, Bauer's chances at first base took a blow when the uh, Rays acquired C.J. Crone from the Angels for a, a player to be named, I think. Uh, how does Crone figure into the Rays lineup? I'm going to guess he plays. Yeah, he, he goes to a good situation. Uh, he's a right-handed hitter, and, and the A's need those. Uh, um, the ballpark actually isn't isn't quite as good as as Anaheim is for for right-handed hitters so he he gets he gets downgraded a little bit there he, he's out of options so he's going to be on the club that was one of the reasons he was dealt by the Angels and obviously he projects right now as the, as one of the primaries if not the primary at first base and DH for uh, for the Rays uh, what this does to Brad Miller remains to be seen uh, we still have him uh, um, projected uh, in the first base DH mix uh, some 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 sites have him moving back to second base. Uh, others have him as the primary DH. I'm not aware of any announcement yet. Uh, you know, again, uh, a lot of uh, a, a lot of moving parts here and and positional versatility. So we're going to have to wait and see what happens. And none of it particularly compelling from an, a fantasy point of view. The uh, Rays got back some prospects in this three-way deal. They got Nick Solak from the Yankees. He's a second baseman. I don't see him figuring too much. Uh, but I am interested in the starting pitcher they got from Arizona, this kid, uh, Anthony Banda. What do you know about him? I like Banda. He was actually at the tail end of my top 100 in the baseball exer uh, baseball HQ exercise we did uh, earlier uh, this spring. Um, he, he's a rookie pitcher, and rookie pitcher speculations being what they are, you you can't rely on them. But um, particularly leaving Chase Field, he seems to me to be one of the better ones. Um, he uh, he really jumped up in 2016. He made a few top 100 lists. Uh, um, his command improved. Unfortunately, it backed up a little bit last year. Pitching in Reno, which was one of the the most offensive friendly parks in the Pacific Coast, and those those parks have a tendency to to spook a lot of hitters coming up through the ranks. Uh, I, I think he has better than back of the rotation upside. He's got a 95 mile an hour fastball, really good change up, uh, still working on his curve. Um, uh, uh, Kevin Cash, the Tampa Bay manager, says he's going to use a four man rotation beginning April through May, which probably puts Banda in the minors to begin with. Uh, 
Um, but uh, we had some interesting news today that uh, apparently uh, Brett Honeywell went down with an arm injury. We're still waiting for a report on that. Uh, I don't. I actually don't see Matt Andresi holding back Banda's opportunities. So come uh, come mid year, come um, maybe May June. I, I think Banda gets a real crack in Tampa Bay. We'll see how he does. I guess uh, there's also always the consideration they may may not want to start his playing time clock, but then also there's been rampant speculation that Chris Archer is going to be traded uh, sooner rather than later as they continue the teardown in Florida to match uh, what Miami's been doing in Tampa. Uh, Matt Andres, you mentioned, probably profiles as a kind of a swingman type of guy, not that much interest there. And uh, the Honeywell news would be really bad because he's been on a lot of people's lists in this early going in some of the fantasy websites as a guy to keep your eye on because he's a pretty good young pitcher. And if he's coming out with a sore arm, that's not good news. Uh, CJ Crone coming to Tampa also, of course, going to affect the Angels lineup. And it looks like they're trying to figure out a way to get Shohei Otani's bat into the lineup, uh, which some people wondered about. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You match uh, what they did with with Crone and uh, to the announcement uh, that uh, apparently, at least partly due to the out of the new uh, scoreboard that they're putting up in uh, at the back of the right field stands, um, the right field wall is going to be lowered by ten feet, which is going to make hitting home runs for left-handed hitters uh, a lot more interesting in uh, in Anaheim than it's been in a long time. And of course, Otani hits from the left side. Uh, Luis Valbuena, who's going to get some first base at bats now that uh, Crone is gone. He hits from the left-handed side. Um, if Otani gets three, four starts a week, um, uh, it, it, I mean, it looks like the Angels are, are gearing up toward that. It's going to be interesting to see what he can does. I mean, the, the book on him hitting-wise is power is his calling card, so we'll see what happens. Uh, I just finished talking with Gene uh, McCaffrey in his Wise Guy Baseball Annual. He had a uh, Japanese league expert looking at the situation and saying he thought Otani was going to be in a well above average pitcher and a well below average hitter because hitting in the big leagues is really, really hard. And uh, I, I'm curious to see if Otani can do anything with the bat because I think it's just a great story. It's good for baseball. Where does all this leave Albert Pujols, by the way? Yeah, it is a fun story, and, and, and I think the fact that the Angels waited to make this deal is a commentary probably on Pujols' healthy, uh, uh, his, his current health right now and his off-season regimen. He went into this off-season uh, healthier than he's ever been going into an off-season. He was actually not rehabbing from anything. He worked out pretty hard. He lost some weight. Uh, I actually wouldn't be surprised if Pujols had a better season than he had last year, which, I mean, it's a low bar, but uh, he still hit 22, 23 home runs and, and drove in 100 runs last season, so it wouldn't be surprising to me at all to see him be productive again. And finally, although we're not talking about Tampa, it seems like we're always going to be talking about Tampa because of all the uh, fire sales that they're running. Uh, last year's surprise team, Minnesota, acquired pitcher Jake Odorizzi from Tampa in return for yet another minor league prospect. Uh, how does Jake Odorizzi project in target field with the Twins? You know, he took a big step back last year. Uh, he had a couple of DL stints. Uh, his his upside was always a little bit uh, limited. I think pitching in Tampa helped him out. Uh, Minnesota's not that bad a pitching park, and he, and, he's, and he obviously, with the Twins' need for rotation help, he's going to be in the rotation as long as he's healthy and, 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 and can take the ball uh, until he proves that he can't. Uh, he's uh, He looks to me like replacement level or even below uh, – replacement level pitcher uh, we haven't projected to earn ten dollars right now but I think uh, that this trade was just made and I think Ray Murphy's already working on that valuation uh, I'm not particularly high on it or, or is he uh, what's your take on that 
Well, the thing that worries me and really jumps out at Ozer, about Odorizzi's record is he posted a, what, about a 414 uh, ERA last year, and he barely had a two command, two strikeouts per walks, which is now considered on the really on the low end. Eight strikeouts per nine seems pretty much league average. And the big concern for me is a uh, 22-23% hit rate, which means he's he was really lucky on balls in play. And I know that there are pitchers who can create the kind of uh, – uh, batted ball trajectories that are most opt, uh, optimized for the per- particular situation. I don't think Odorizzi's in that class, and for that reason, I am really concerned that maybe there's more like a 5.50 ERA coming this year. Uh, of course, uh, depending if you're in a mixed league, I don't think he's rosterable. In an AL-only league, towards the end of the draft, maybe if you're desperate for for some innings, I don't know. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm I'm kind of uh, avoiding uh, Odorizzi right now. I'd uh, I'd be starting to look at uh, some of those multi-inning uh, high strikeout relievers uh, before I'm before I'm looking at Jake Odorizzi. I think that's uh, probably the best way to go if you can find the low the uh, I should say high inning multi-inning relievers, which uh, they're slower in coming than we thought they were going to be. I talked with Gene about that too. Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. Great to have you back. We'll talk to you throughout the season, of course. Sounds great, PD. See ya. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com. He also writes for the site, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our Baseball HQ Radio commentaries, the Minor League Minute, and position previews coming up. Stay with us, Baseball HQ Radio. As you know, I've been working for BaseballHQ.com for quite a long time, and I really do believe it's the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And the reason is because of great content. Just listen to this. This is just a small, small sample of what's available at the site. In the speculator column, Ryan Bloomfield looks for this year's Whit Merrifield. In facts and flukes, Brant Chesser looks at Adam Jones, Jorge Polanco, Mike Zanino, Jordan Montgomery, and Addison Reed. And in playing time tomorrow, Joseph Pitleski looks at roster situations in the American League Central. And like I say, that's just a small sampling of all the great content at BaseballHQ.com all the time. And it is why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Ventura is waiting. McGlinchey staring in, has his sign. A 2-1 pitch. The drive in the air to deep right field. That ball headed toward the wall. That ball is out of here. Out of here. A game-winning grand slam home run off the bat of Robin Ventura. Ventura with a grand slam. They're mobbing him before he can get to second base. The Mets have won the ball game. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have our second player preview of the preseason. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Braves super prospect Ronald Acuna is another original member of the HQ Radio podcast team. Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. No prospect has generated as much buzz this offseason as the Atlanta Braves' Ronald Acuna. The precocious Venezuelan outfielder dominated in 2017, slashing 325 with a 374 on base percentage and a 522 slugging percentage with 31 doubles, 21 home runs, and 44 stolen bases across three minor league levels. Acuna, who just turned 20 in December, has as much raw talent as any prospect since Bryce Harper and Mike Trout, and is a true five-tool talent and comes into the season as our top-ranked prospect. Offensively, there really isn't anything Acuna can't do. He has plus bat speed and blasts the ball to all fields with above-average power. He's a 70-grade runner who plays solid defense, has the arm for right field, and has the potential to be a 30-30 player at his peak. 
It will be interesting to see what the Braves do with Acuna as the season approaches. A strong spring will make it difficult to send him back down to AAA Gwinnett, but the cost-conscious Braves will likely keep him in the minors through the end of April so they can have him under control for another season. If the Braves do send Acuna down to start the year, this could be a boon for those in redraft leagues, as it could depress his value on draft day. Regardless of when he comes up, the Braves' Ronald Acuna is worth rostering. Just don't get carried away, as he carries the same risk as any rookie does. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organizations, daily call-ups reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, and who doesn't, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now the second installment of our preseason position preview. Looking at the position-by-position tiers we think will be available at your draft. And here with a look at 2018 outfielders is BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. Let's begin our position preview cheat sheets for hitters with the outfield. Knowledge of position landscapes helps you make keeper decisions and provides perspective on position scarcity for your drafts and auctions. We're using the universal draft grid from our 2018 baseball forecaster to see how many players are at each tier level in mixed and only leagues. The universal draft guide uses standard roto categories and 20-game position eligibility. So for example, if your league requires only 10 games or uses on-base percentage instead of batting average, you'll need to adjust. If you want a precise picture of individual player rankings and values specific to your leagues, use the custom draft guide at BaseballHQ.com. We divide players into seven tiers, elite, gold, stars, regulars, mid-level, bench, and fringe. In the elite and gold tiers, there are 17 outfielders, 10 from the National League and 7 from the American League, now that J.D. Martinez is in Boston. The elite tier bold print goes to consensus number one pick Mike Trout and base dealer extraordinaire Billy Hamilton. Only one player in the gold tier gets the honors, and he's new brewer Christian Yelich. That gives everyone a chance for a top outfielder in 15-team mixed or 10-team National League-only leagues, but in American League-only leagues, there aren't enough to go around. In the Stars tier, we have 15 fine outfielders, with 9 in the American League and 6 in the National. That brings the league totals to 16 each. Outfielders in the Stars tier with good reliability grades are also split evenly. In the American League, they are Chris Davis, Eddie Rosario, and Brett Gardner. In the National League, they are Odubel Herrera, Ender Enciarte, and Adam Eaton, even though he is coming back from a serious knee injury. The outfield list appears to expand in the regulars tier, adding 37 names. But that's deceiving. Michael Conforto will miss at least the first month of the season, four free agents remain unsigned, and 10 others don't have starting jobs. There are really only 22 full-time targets in the regulars tier. With Steven Souza switching leagues, the National League has 12 and the American League has 10. Those targets include four with straight-A reliability grades, three of them in the American League, Adam Jones, Nomar Mazzara, and Kevin Pillar. In most leagues, many outfielders will be taken to fill UT slots, so even if you only need three outfielders instead of the standard five, the outfield landscape in the regulars tier should convince you to be aggressive in targeting the top 32 from the three tiers above, hoping you can snare at least two. If you can get another two from the regulars tier, you should be competitive. There are even some highly rated rookies to consider, such as Ronald Acuna, Nick Williams, Bradley Zimmer, and Jesse Winker. 
The funnel narrows quickly after this tier. If you don't have four outfielders by now, you'll probably be working the waiver wire and searching the free agent pool all year. At the mid-level tier, the American League continues its advantage in reliability grades with Cole Calhoun, Stephen Piscotty, and Ben Gamble. In the National League, only Nick Markakis has straight A's. There are 26 outfielders in the mid-level tier. Three are free agents. The National League has 12, and the American League has 11. If you still need two outfielders, you'll want at least one from the mid-level tier. So taking a flyer on Dustin Fowler or Willie Calhoun may be worth the risk before you plunge into the final two tiers. There are 36 outfielders in the bench tier and 20 in the fringe tier. Of that 56, four are unsigned free agents, the American League has 29, and the National League has 23. So make your humidor adjustments for Chase Field, take into account our updated park factors for the other 29 venues, and assume everyone in your league will use an outfielder at utility. In standard five outfielder leagues, target two from the top three tiers, two from the regulars tier, and one from the mid-level tier. If your sixth outfielder is from one of those tiers, you'll be solid. Best of luck with your outfield plans, and tune in next week to tour the corner infielder landscape. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and all through the preseason we'll be bringing us our position previews. Now it's time for the second part of our interview with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball. And Gene, welcome back to part two of your interview. Nice to be here, Patrick, as always. Before we get to some of the commentaries you had in the 2018 annual about the wider game of baseball and fantasy baseball, maybe fill listeners in on how they can order Wise Guy Baseball 2018. If you go to wiseguybaseball.com and sign up, then you'll get the PDF free. It's $39.95. Also, I've been posting additional player comments, mostly rookies. I held out some this year and so that I could give people a little a little extra to uh, for their money, and we'll talk about players whose whose value changes depending on the signings and trades, and and then during the season I will give some DFS picks. Um, usually um, on any given day, there are a couple of guys who, who really stand out in DFS, and I will be sure to let you know who those players are. So thirty nine ninety five, you get the annual and you get the uh, access for a year to the website. That's the deal. That's the deal. Yeah, it's a year subscription and uh, a bargain at the price, as everyone tells me. Okay, let's talk about some of the commentaries in Wise Guy Baseball two thousand eighteen. You argue in one of them that fly ball percentage as a negative indicator for pitchers is overrated or maybe just plain wrong. Uh, you and I have talked about this in seasons past, but explain again why are fly balls not necessarily bad things for pitchers? Well, first of all, because some of the very best pitchers are extreme fly ballers, notably Scherzer, Verlander, Sale, and Kenley Jansen. Um, second of all, I, most of the ground ball. Uh, the pro ground ball camp comes from the fact, and it is a fact, that ground ball pitchers have lower ERAs. And if you have lower ERA, then you can get a few more wins. But fly ball pitchers get more strikeouts, and fly ball pitchers have lower whips. So it's a wash. And fly ball pitchers um, are just as valuable as ground ball pitchers, granting the fact that being extreme in either one is does not make you a good pitcher by itself. However, if you're extreme either way, and you control the strike zone, the odds are very high that you're going to be very good. 
I think that's the key thing, right? You're looking for those guys who get a lot of one or a lot of the other, and most pitchers really are pretty much in the middle somewhere. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been doing this research for at least 10 years, and every year it comes up the same, is that these, if you're a fly ball pitcher who controls the strike zone or a ground ball pitcher who controls the strike zone, you're going to be good, and it's the guys in the middle that you really, um, you know, should be a little more skeptical of, with the exception of the those rare pitchers who can induce the kind of batter ball that they want, um, depending on the circumstances, and that is a rare skill owned only by elite pitchers. Um, usually, you saw it with with Randy Johnson and Pedro Martinez when they started out their career; they were fly ball pitchers. But as their careers went on, they got closer to the middle as they got more confident and they could get the kind of batter ball they want. Now, in today's game. Kluber and Strasburg are those pitchers who are, you know, they're they're elite pitchers and they can get the kind of ground balls that they want. But otherwise, I would be skeptical of a pitcher who is not extreme, either ground balls or fly balls. Yeah, a guy who jumps into my mind when we talk about pitchers who could generate the type of contact they wanted was Greg Maddox, of course, back in the day. And uh, there were all these stories, possibly apocryphal, that said that not only was he able to get the fly ball that he wanted, but he would deliberately get a loud f- foul ball, f- fly ball, to set up a guy for two innings later when he would need a f- you know a fair ball, fly ball, and he'd know exactly how to do it. Uh, I don't know how true those stories are, but there are pitchers who can do it. We we definitely know it, and they're the pitchers who tend to be all uh, all stars and Hall of Famers. Uh, in related comments, Gene, you explore what happens when fly ball hitters face ground ball pitchers, and then when they face fly ball pitchers. What did you find out about that? Well, I mean, this is research that goes back to the 80s with the Elias Sports Bureau and then was confirmed by Tom Tango in, in his book, uh, Playing the Percentages in Baseball. Um, but it's another platoon advantage. Um, when a fly ball hitter faces a ground ball pitcher, he does very well um, on the whole. <clears throat> there are exceptions. It's not across the board. Um, in Wise Guy Baseball, I listed 12 hitters who who had slugged an average of 533 against ground ball pitchers. And it's hard to slug 533 off a ground ball pitcher. It's notable, and it's a big factor in DFS. I mean, I'll throw out three names right here out of the 12, Anthony Rendon, Matt Carpenter, and Kyle Seeger. Um, The other thing about it being a platoon advantage is you can add it to the normal platoon advantage. You know, so if those guys or any of those guys are facing a righty, especially a semi-stiff or a stiff righty in DFS, those are guys that you really want. Now, for fly ball hitters facing fly ball pitchers, they do not hit for average. Um, their average is notably down, but their home runs are notably up, and that's another factor. You know, that's what you're always looking for in DFS. You know, who's going to hit a home run tonight, and therefore who's going to who might hit two home runs tonight. Um, so basically, it's another platoon advantage that can be added to the platoon advantage that we already use, and um, it's an extra edge for sure. You also argue that managers don't innovate in handling relief pitching, as we talked about earlier, primarily because they just don't want to make decisions. Why do you say that? Well, it won't be second guessed. I mean, everything is predictable, and, and you know, and this is not new. I mean, this has been going starting in the fifties. You know, managers have been trying to for ever more rigid bullpen usage patterns. Um, they've changed a little bit, but the, the principle is the same. Um, you know, they thought they had it down 
with their, you know, the closer, the setup guy, the specialists, the guys who pitched when they were losing. And but it's just it's a terribly inefficient way to uh, to manage a baseball game. And I think the the only conceivable reason for it is because it's predictable and they won't be second guessed. But you know, as we've been saying, sooner or later somebody's going to realize that that's not the right way to do it, and you can get much more efficient use of your bullpen by letting these guys go, up to and including letting a pitcher go a whole time through the batting order. Um, you know, you don't have to do that twice a week, but you can do it once, and then later on in the week you can pitch an inning. Um, same thing. I mean, it requires a little finesse and a little intelligence and, you know, avoiding those who were, uh, you know, avoiding abuse, but Lord knows they have enough pitchers in their bullpen to do that. I don't think it's difficult at all, really. Um, and sooner or later, I hope this year, we're going to see it. I wonder if it's going to be a matter of just some of the old guard managers being replaced by younger guys who, who have a better understanding or a willingness to be open-minded about such things to rely a little more on the kind of research that Tom Tango does and others. Certainly baseball teams are investing in those kind of people who can look at the numbers and figure out solutions and figure out uh, ways to optimize usage and so forth. And I also wonder, Gene, if you think that maybe as the media change, you've got uh, a lot of old old guard kind of baseball writers who still dominate those kind of proceedings in the papers and even on talk radio. But as younger guys move into that field and are willing to call out bad management decisions based on data and numbers, maybe that could be a, a, a an impetus to start the change towards more optimized use. Yeah, I think that the media is a key factor. I would not necessarily call it an age thing, though. I think there are some of the older older school managers who would be more open to it, possibly Buck Showalter, possibly Bochi. I mean, they seem to be open-minded guys who were interested in getting the most out of their personnel. Um, and on the other hand, Mike Matheny is a young manager who seems to be as you know carved in stone as anybody as far as uh, less likely to innovate. Um, but yeah, I think you're right as far as the media is concerned. And uh, a little pressure... Um, Maybe we can hope, Patrick. Um, <laughs> a little pressure might go a long way. You know, it worked for the Astros, and that's you know that's the biggest influence, I think. And now that I think about it, Gene, uh, maybe a young manager coming in. I'm thinking of Aaron Boone in New York, a media pressure cooker. Maybe he's the last guy we should expect to be really innovative because he doesn't want to, in addition to all the regular pressure he's going to face, have to stand up having lost a game because he used his reliever for three innings and having to explain why he did it to a bunch of guys who are real skeptical and they're always, you know, like sharks, uh, sharks uh, smelling blood in the water. Yeah, and uh, well, and as far as Boone is concerned, I mean, judging from from his work as a broadcaster, he didn't strike me as being bristling with new ideas. You say that the trend in picking starting pitchers early, which has been going on for a few years now, I saw one experts league where four starting pitchers went in the top 15. You say that trend is going to start going the other way. When do you think that's likely to happen and why? Well, it's not this year. I thought it was going to be this year. Um, in my November draft at uh, first pitch Arizona, it, it seemed to be going that way, but it's not. I was looking at the ADPs in, in the NFBC and 10 of the top 35 picks uh, are starting pitchers. So it's not happening yet. I think um, I think people are still people still want an ace. 
the majority of people anyway and, and build off the ace. Once that does start happening, how do we play it? There's a couple of ways to go about doing it. Um, Peter Kreutzer um, has sh- shows year after year that the biggest roto losers are the second and third tier pitchers. Um, so I think that that, the guys who kind of come out of nowhere and um, those kind of pitchers are guys who should fall on our lists. If we're reasonably confident about getting an ace, I think you should get one and possibly two. Um, I think that's the way to play it this year. Um, I think that if you can get one of the big four and then back them up with, uh, say, a Carlos Martinez, um, somebody in that class who, who, by the way, is I think going to increase his innings pitch, that's why I mention him, um, I think there's an edge to be gotten because I don't think there's a great deal of difference between the hitters who are available in the fourth round and the hitters who are available in the sixth round. Um, almost no difference as far as I can see. Um, but those starting pitchers are extremely valuable, and if everybody's getting one, I think the way to do it is to either get two or take a big chance and get none, and then you know try to you know Lima plan it out or modified Lima plan it out later on. It's difficult to do. I think you know you can score big doing that, but you can also lose big doing that. So my inclination for this year is to see hey. Let me get two guys, see if that works. And finally, Gene, you wondered about umpire measurement. What was your angle there? They always measure umpires in runs per game and, you know, strikeouts and walks, and and that's fine. But the real question is, how often does this ump call a ball a strike, and how often does he call a strike a ball? Because the biggest edge in baseball is whether a hitter is ahead in the count and behind in the count. It's a good 400 points in OPS. It's huge. The biggest edge in the game. Um, I know the stats are out there. Pitch framing proves it. Um, I would really like to see somebody publish the data that shows definitively who the umpires are that are going to help us and hurt us, depending on whether, whether you want the pitcher or the hitter. Yeah, no kidding. Clearly a DFS uh, huge scoop once you have that data, especially if you're the only guy who does. Yeah, I mean, a couple of years ago it was out there, and I was using it. Um, in fact, it was on BaseballSavant.com, uh, but they took the data down uh, for, I guess we'll call it political reasons. Um, and I've been like a fish out of water ever since. Um, it really worked. I mean, it wasn't you know 100%, but it was a good 80% of the time. You'd get value out of using, you know, this pitcher with this ump or this hitter even with this ump, um, especially the pitchers because you know you get a, a mediocre pitcher who you yeah, they're all capable of throwing good games with a with a you know uh, trying to think of his name um, I can't think of it off the top of my head a tremendous pitcher's umpire um, with him behind the plate I mean the guy was not a guarantee to throw a good game but he was a pretty good bet to give you some points for, you know, for little salary. All right, Gene, uh, this is uh, interesting, and there's other commentaries in the Wise Guy Baseball Annual as well. We can't get to them all, of course. Don't want to spoil the surprise for people who put the 39 bucks into the uh, 
into the purchase of the product and the access to the site. So we'll let them do that. Uh, before the season, I always like to ask our expert guests to pick players who will be worth getting for the season. I'll call them nabbers because you want to nab them at the draft. And those worth avoiding, which I've cleverly called slabbers, like in the morgue. I know these names suck and they will, they will be changed, but in the meantime, let's get your nabbers and slabbers for 2018, starting with the nabbers, guys you like for 2018 in the American League. Who's a hitter that's a Gene Nabber? How about Miguel Sano, which I regard as the perfect opportunity to buy low. And if your league mates want to say, oh, you know, tisk tisk about his personal life and the fact that he's overweight coming into camp, um, first of all, they know almost nothing about his personal life. Um, let him. Um, he's high on the list of the most likely hitters to increase his home runs, and he hit 28 last year. So I think he's, uh, he's perfect, and he's not going too high. And he missed time, too, 28 home runs in a less than a full season. Even if he just gets the extra at-bats, he's going to improve that home run total. That's right. You're looking for a long shot to hit 50. There he is. Over in the National League, who's a hitter you'd like to nab? I like Yasiel Puig. Um, he's the, currently the 30th outfielder off the board. He's got power. He's got speed. He's not going to hurt your batting average. Um, for such an aggressive player, he's got a really good, he's got good strike zone judgment that's improved a lot. He's likely to move up in the batting order. Personally, he seems to have settled down. And he loves to play the game, and that's you know that's an intangible, but it certainly can't hurt. Over to the mound in the American League, who's a pitcher you'd like to nab for 2018? Garrett Richards. Um, he had a one and a half ERA in his last five starts with a strikeout per inning. He's a, and when a, when an extreme ground baller does that, he should always be on your radar. Um, it looks like he's going to be available as your number three SP. Um, easily, probably even a number four. His ADP is 171. Um, he's got injury risk, but that factors that in there if you take him there. And who doesn't have injury risk? Yeah. Um, and even if he gets hurt, I think you'll be uh, you'll you'll have to deal with it. But you'll deal with it from a position of strength. And finally, amongst the nabbers, a pitcher in the National League. I like Michael Walker. Um, I know he's had problems. Uh, but the physical ones seem to have cleared up. Um, he finished strong. His velocity was up to a career high. The Cardinals are always a good team to pitch for. Um, he's undervalued as we speak with an ADP of 247, and he's the 101st pitcher off the board, and I think he should be going 40 pitchers ahead of that. Gene McCaffrey's nabbers, Miguel Sano of Minnesota, Yaziel Puig of the Dodgers, Garrett Richards of the uh, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, and Michael Walker of St. Louis. Let's move over to the slabbers. Gene, guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious because they could put your team on the slab. Uh, let's start again in the American League. Who's a hitter you don't like? Uh, Matt Olson. Uh, we talked about this at first pitch. Uh, I, I still can't get over the fact that he had 24 home runs and two doubles. Um, He's got massive power, yes, but he's also a massive slump waiting to happen. Again, way too many strikeouts, too many fly balls. He can't avoid a slump. In time, he'll snap out of that slump um, if he's any good, which I think he is. But I think the thing to do is to let someone else take him. I think you got a good chance of somebody dropping him, and then he could pick him up in August. Who's a National League hitter for the slab? Jake Lamb. Um, 
He's hit 153 off lefties for the last two years, which means that he almost has to be a platoon player this year. And I very much fear that that will hurt him against righties. So he's a stay away for me. And you got the humidor on top of that. Uh, the American League pitcher who goes to the slab for Gene? Uh, Michael Fulmer, at least relatively speaking. Bad team. Um, he's a low strikeout pitcher. Um, he's a guy. He's going 61 against pitchers. I'd much rather have Michael Walker. Um, there were 20 pitchers that I'd rather have. Um, it's not that I think he's a bad pitcher. I just think that this is the wrong year to be on Michael, Michael Fulmer's bandwagon. And finally, a uh, National League pitcher that uh, deserves the slab as far as you're concerned. Well, a guy who's going pretty high, and, I, and that's Zach Godley. Um, he, I fear that uh, he throws a lot of junk, a uh, very low percentage of fastballs. I think that batters are going to start laying off it. And so despite the humidor, I don't think the humidor is going to help with that. Um, I think you're going to see his walks up, and I think he's going to have to come in with the fastball because he's going to be behind on the count more often, and I think he's going to suffer. So I'm not saying he's going to be bad, but I think that relatively speaking, he's exactly the kind of second- and third-tier pitcher that tends to lose their value. Gene McCaffrey, Slabbers, Matt Olson of Oakland, Jake Lamb of Arizona, Michael Fulmer of Detroit, and Zach Godley of Arizona. Not a good year for Arizona, I guess. Uh, Gene, uh, it's been terrific. Uh, tell us again where listeners can read more from Gene McCaffrey. Uh, go to wiseguybaseball.com, and um, I hope to see you there. And feel free to contribute and ask questions, and I'll answer them the best I can. And, of course, uh, signing up for the website means getting the Wise Guy Baseball Annual for free. One of the most fun reads, I can tell you, that you're ever going to have reading about fantasy baseball. Uh, Gene, uh, once again, I think the 2018 Annual is a terrific piece of work, and I can uh, really recommend it. I had a little hand in producing it, I should uh, full disclosure, but uh, even if uh, even if I'd never seen it before, I'd be delighted to recommend it. Well, I don't want to thank you. I want to take this opportunity to thank you for the great work that you did in the design of it. Not only in the design, but in sharpening up a lot of the comments. You added your little touches and your little touches <laughs> and and made it a better uh, a better read than I think it's ever been before. And that's what people are telling me. And uh, I hope that I had set a high standard. And I hope that this year I exceeded that high standard. And I want to thank you for contributing to that. Always easy to polish a diamond. Gene, thanks very much for helping us out. We'll talk to you again during the year. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Always a true pleasure to be here. Gene McCaffrey is the wise guy of fantasy baseball. He writes regularly at his wiseguybaseball.com website, and he's the author of the Wise Guy Baseball 2018 Annual. You pay thirty nine ninety five, you get the annual, you get the website. What more could you ask for? Next up, it's our weekly Talk with Todd. Todd Zola coming up along with Master Notes. Stay with us. It's Baseball HQ Radio. You know, fantasy baseball isn't really new anymore, but it's sure changing, and it feels new most of the time. And as a result, don't you find it's harder than ever to get that winner's edge? Winning your league in 2018, you know, it might even take a whole reboot of your thinking about how to build your roster. And a great way to boot the reboot is First Pitch Forums. First Pitch Forums are lively three-hour events with experts from BaseballHQ.com and other websites, all led by the master, Ron Chandler. They'll be talking about key topics for this year, like the surge in home runs and the shortage of stolen bases, and how the stolen bases are being concentrated in just a handful of players. How do you manage that? 
How do you manage the shifts in big league managers using their starters and their bullpens, the rise in strikeout rates, and the fantasy effects of the 10-day DL, the Dodger vacation, as they're coming to call it? How do you draft the right rookies to get the maximum impact? How do you find those late-game sleepers for 2018? Well, First Pitch Forums is how you're going to find all that out. They start this weekend with a swing through the Midwest on Saturday the 24th at the St. Louis Airport Marriott from noon till 3, and then on Sunday it's on to Chicago the 25th of February at the Oak Brook Marriott, again from noon to 3. The following weekend is a swing up the East Coast, starting in Columbia, Maryland at the Hilton Garden Inn on Friday, March 2nd from 7 to 10, then Saturday, March 3rd at the Hilton Westchester in Rybrook, New York. That's an afternoon session, 2 to 5. And then on Sunday, they wrap up in Boston at the Courtyard Boston Natick at Natick, Massachusetts from 1 till 4. Is it Natick or Natick? I don't even know. Whatever, if you're anywhere near Boston, you probably know how it's pronounced. You can find your way there to the Courtyard Boston Natick or Natick. Three hours of hanging around with experts, talking baseball with other fantasy owners, and learning a ton about how to adapt to the new baseball realities of 2018. Hey, what's not to like? First Pitch Forums, check it out. Get the details at BaseballHQ.com slash seminars slash index dot shtml. And you got to put that shtml thing in there or it isn't going to work. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular Talk with Todd. We're going to be talking with Todd Zola from mastersball.com and ESPN, one of our favorite guests here at Baseball HQ Radio. And Todd, welcome to the show. Wow, can, can, can you believe it? It was 60 degrees in uh, where I live yesterday, so a uh, little spring fever. Yeah, actually, I should be honest, it's the second show. It's the first one with the full complement of all our experts and our favorite people like you. And uh, um, you're working again this year for ESPN, and I noticed you had an article at ESPN Fantasy discussing the uh, fantasy effects of the much ballyhooed humidor that will be used at Chase Field this year, the home of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Todd, they say chicks and casual fans dig the long ball. Why did they think they needed to dampen power in the desert with the humidor? You know what, uh, Patrick, the, the funny thing is that's not why they reportedly wanted to switch to the humidor. They wanted to switch to the humidor because the pitchers are complaining that the ball is too slick and they couldn't get the grip to throw some of their breakers and stuff like that. And a matter of fact, the when it, it was a year ago, April, uh, this coming April, you know, almost a year ago, when the uh, someone in the Arizona management famously said something like, um, we don't expect it to affect power, but we, you know, the pitchers want to get more break on their balls, etc. Which, of course, as we'll talk about, is not going to be the case. But it wasn't. It wasn't so sort just of suppressed power. Is because the pitchers were complaining about the slickness of the coating. Because what the what the pressure and the temperature does in Arizona, it dries the balls out, and they just feel slicker. And the humidor adds just a little bit of moisture to the to the covering, so they get a better grip. Okay, I'll buy that, but uh, if you make pitchers able to throw better breaking balls, doesn't that reduce power? Um, yeah, I guess, but uh, again, the, this is what they said. And then uh, you know, a bunch of us just went out and kind of, I don't say laughed it off, but we, we, we laughed that comment off. It was kind of a, um, I don't know, on it, I don't want to say uneducated, uh, all right, whatever, it was an uneducated uh, comment, I'll say it. It was kind of an uneducated comment uh, about the whole thing, and the numbers show, science shows, that 
it is going to re- not not just because of the better pitches, but because of some of the other factors we we can talk about. It is going to reduce power. What are those factors then? Basically, the uh, it's the it, it, people think a heavier ball is heavier. It doesn't travel as far, but what it really is is the the elasticity. We can you know the nerds out there we can go the coefficient of restitution. The elasticity on the uh, slightly heavier ball is reduced, so there's just not, there's not enough ping, there's not enough bounce, or not as much bounce, and the ball doesn't travel as far. You know, think about a, you know, a super ball. Why it bounces so high? Because it's got such a, it's so elastic. It, the, the elasticity is reduced. The ball's not going to travel as far. You want to talk in in the current parlance? The exit velocity is reduced. So basically, because the ball is a little heavier and a little softer, it's just not going to go as far, which stands to reason. Yeah, exactly. And this, I mean, it's it's not going to go. I mean, you know, a hundred mile an hour exit velocity down to a ninety eight or ninety seven. You know, it's there's there's still going to be some hits in 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 Arizona, but it is going to there the offense is going to be is going to decline. It's you know there's some there's some people out there there's some flat earthers out there that don't believe it. They they believe that Paul Goldschmidt's has a special bat that doesn't be, behave with the laws of physics, but it does, and he's going to have lower exit velocity, and lower exit velocity is going to mean less power and fewer base hits for some people. Yeah, we'll come back to Paul Goldschmidt in a second. I'm curious about that, but uh, the, right. there's a physicist whose name is Alan Nathan, and he's done a lot of work mm-hmm. about the juiced ball and, and other baseball-related physics matters, and he said in 2017 that uh, after they made this humidor announcement, he expected home runs at Chase Field to decline by 25 to 50%. Can that be true? Right. It's a, it's a huge range, which is you know one thing people you know people are reading the story and the first thing they're doing is, is poo-pooing it because the range is so big. Well, I mean, it, th- that's what the range is. I mean, you, you, don't, you don't predetermine the answer. You find out what it is. And the numbers that he's done, backed by both StatCast and other means, suggest a 25 to 50% reduction in home runs, which is kind of big. I mean, it, it takes – and, you know, that, that's at home games. So, you know, if you hit 20 balls out of the park – at home, a 25% reduction is, you, you know, you're going to lose five homers. So a, a 40 home run hitter, a 35 home run hitter, at least on paper, it should lose around five homers. You know, is that, you know, it's still a good hitter. A 35 home run to a 30 home run hitter, you know, is still a good hitter. Uh, but, you know, the science and the math suggest that you're going to lose some homers. And I think uh, if if the range is twenty five to fifty, and even if that's if it's at the very low end of the range, that's still a lot of home runs. Uh, Arizona had uh, I don't know something on the order of two hundred and some home runs last year. Figure about half of them were at home, at probably a little more. You're talking about losing twenty five home runs, maybe thirty. That's a lot of home runs to lose. And if it's at the fifty percent end, then holy cow! I mean, all of a sudden you're practically back to the you know Honus Wagner era with the dead ball. Uh, where do you think it actually is going to end up, and how is it going to actually affect things? See, I don't, I don't know where. That's the thing. But I'll, what I've, what I've done is, if, if, a, if a guy way smarter than me says twenty-five to fifty, what I did was I assumed, I middled it. I assumed thirty-seven and a half, and I did some calculations, which we can talk about. And after I was done with that, I, I did it on either end. I did it at twenty-five, and I did it at fifty to see the potential range. So uh, that's kind of the way that I'm approaching it. And the other thing to remember 
is, and I think people are sort of overlooking this point too, simple variants could mask whatever ends up happening. So, you know, there's going to be people claiming to be a winner and a loser of this whole argument or discussion, if you will, come October. But the fact is, on some players, there's going to be some, you know, as our friend Ron Chandler likes to say, a couple of, you know, fortuitous gusts of wind, knocking some homers out, etc. So there's going to be some variance that's, that, that, that sort of takes care of this for us. Well, not say not takes care of it, but makes it more difficult to just to flesh out exactly what the humidor did. We're going to need a couple years to uh, you know to, to really get a feel. You know, we'll we'll get closer with each data point. But you just got to keep in mind too. There's going to be a pitcher who had a bad left on base percentage, or you know, gave up a high BABIP or something, and they're going to say, well, the humidor didn't affect him. Well, it did. He just also the variance of ERA made it look different. That's all. Now, you mentioned Paul Goldschmidt, and obviously he's the first guy people are going to think of when they think about uh, declining power in Arizona uh, because he's the best hitter they have, frankly. He's the best hitter in general. But right. I, I was looking at Paul Goldschmidt's uh, StatCast data from 2017, and he didn't hit many cheapy home runs at Chase Field. The power alley's there are around 375 feet, and only one of his home runs at Chase Field was fewer feet than that. Is it possible, Todd, that the effect of this decline will be kind of the reverse of what we saw with the juice ball era where, you know, wall scrapers sneak into the stands and and balls that are hit 25 feet beyond the, the fence go 50 feet beyond the fence? If you reverse that out, is it possible that Paul Goldschmidt's going to hit just as many home runs as he did even though they're 15 feet fewer because he was hitting them way more than 15 feet beyond where he needed to hit them? Yeah, it, yeah. I, actually, you, you referenced the article. I, I left. I had a four-point, a four-bullet-point conclusion that there was there just wasn't enough uh, bandwidth to include it, um, and and that was one of the points was the this isn't going to affect all hitters equally, and I it's still I think it's still best to look at it at the big picture and and and, and give everybody the full effect. At least until we get some more better, you know, some Statcast data that you can go a little bit more granular. You know, as someone who projects an entire population of, of players, I kind of have to keep it big time. I kind of have to keep it looking at everybody. Those that have the time to dissect on an individual individual basis can maybe find Statcast data and, and, and park overlay and, and spray charts, etc. That can do that. So I will, you know, yeah, it could happen. Or you know, but. It's still it's what's one year's worth of data, you know. Those a couple of years ago, Goldschmidt only hit twenty. I say only. I mean, I wish I could hit twenty four homers. Only hit twenty four homers. So, you know, it's not, you, you got to look at more than one year's worth of data. And then, as you alluded to at the very beginning, the whole, you know, our pitcher's going to get a little bit more movement. Is this going to, you know, is he going to be able to square up as many balls and, and have the same exit velocity because the pitches are moving a little bit more? Or maybe pitchers have different uh, sequencing because of confidence or whatever. So it, it's not a sort of a you can't you can't just change one variable and keep everything else the same. It's gonna you know as you know it's kind of a, a dynamic effect that we just don't know what's gonna happen. Does the home run effect uh, filter down according to Dr. Nathan or anybody else that you read or even your own research to other ex extra base hits or base hits in general for that matter? Yeah, um, it does. Be, you know, exit velocity in general. Is reduced, and as we we've, you know, we've, we we were kind of the two of us kind of in our own little research. I don't want to say we're at the forefront, but we were kind of early on as far as looking at soft, medium, and hard 
base hits once we started to get that classifications and granted they were very subjective but at the time it was all we had and we found out kind of curiously that medium hit fly uh, medium hit balls whether it be grounders or fly balls have a higher uh, have a lower BABIP than ground than softly hit which was kind of odd but when you think about it a medium hit ground ball is easy to field and hard to beat out right and right. a medium hit fly ball isn't going to fall in and isn't going to go over the outfielder's head so it kind of makes intuitive sense so yeah there there could be uh, fewer hit, you know a hard hit ball becomes a medium hit ball you know there should be more medium hit balls and some of those medium become soft and a, you know a guy like kettle Marte maybe who has a lot of medium hit still you know in a kind of weird way may become better because of the uh of some of you know he maybe some of those hard hit ball or medium hit balls he beats out in the infield who knows but um yeah i in and according to Coors field data which is really all we have right now you can expect around a five percent decrease in base hits and chase field though it was already a pretty inconsistent venue offensively wasn't right. it right I mean, you mentioned that. Uh, so how does that affect your ability to project what's going to happen, given the fact that it's it's hard to set a baseline when it's jumping around? Well, that's the thing, too, is, is you know, park factors is a reason why we use a three-year average, and it just, it's been a very, very, uh, as you suggest, variable field in general. So, so that, that, that feeds back into the variance, the variance um Argument. One year, in, five years ago, it played 96. It played. It played for runs without the humidor. So it's 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 just a tough uh, tough to pinpoint a static number. So it, what it does is for us, it increases the there's already error around every player that we look at. Whatever we think a player is going to do, you got to think of it as a range. Now we just have to widen those error bars whenever we deal with. We've been talking mostly about hitters. But we have to widen the air bars. We, you know, Jack, Zach Greinke and Robbie Ray are jumping up the draft charts, but there's some risk there because you know they there may be some you know there may be some variance with their numbers that takes away some of the advantage of the humidor. And in fact, uh, there could be a paradoxic uh, kind of uh, of change in, in how these guys perform in that if they're fairly used to knowing how much the breaking pitches break with this dry um, slippery ball all of a sudden this changes now they you know maybe they start losing a little control on their breaking stuff and all of a sudden they're walking more guys which is a problem for Ray anyway so there could be an, a perverse paradoxical effect and it just seems like we're going to have to wait and see and in the meantime do you kind of scale down Arizona hitters in general and scale up Arizona pitchers uh, in general just a little bit? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's you know how much how much everybody's doing it. There's some people out there, you know. I we we, we talked a little bit about Goldschmidt. You know, if he in in auction terms, if he loses five dollars, and that's reasonable, where he's drafted or where he's purchased. You know, I'll, converting that to draft, for instance, you lose five dollars in, in a draft. He goes from the front of the first round to the back of the first round. That's still a really, really good player. And you know, this is something. There's nothing wrong with being the twelfth best player in fantasy baseball or in real baseball, for that matter. So, you know, if you if you had him fifth or sixth, or originally he's probably tenth, eleventh, or twelfth at this point. A guy like Jake Lamb, if he loses five dollars, and I know we've talked about this before about how. Uh, the 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 descending as you go down the draft the difference between the, the consecutive players start to get less and less and less. If Jake Lamb loses five dollars, that's three or four rounds if we're converting to a draft. Uh, 
So that that you know, whereas Goldschmidt loses six or seven or eight places, Lamb's losing rounds. So that's kind of where it's more significant. I mean, if somebody if someone wanted to draft Paul Goldschmidt fifth, who you know that's fine. I mean, you, you know, anybody from fifth to twentieth, if they want to draft him fifth, fine, it's close enough. But if you if you're keeping Jake Lamb at the same round. You know, I, I don't like to, that's a mistake. I would say, you know, I don't judge drafts necessarily like that until I'm perfect on my own, which I don't think I'll ever be. That's a mistake. If you if you draft Jake Lamb, if you don't make an adjustment to Jake Lamb or something like that. And again, the, the same with the you know Zach Godley and Taiwan Walker. There there should be there should be an advantage. And the other thing we got is as far as pitching goes, people think it's the fly ball pitchers that'll be affected the most. And as we just talked about, it's also base hits. So a guy like Godley, some of the hard hit grounders, because he's such an extreme ground, well not extreme, but a ground ball pitcher, some of those ground ball ground balls will now be scooped up and you know the batter thrown out. So it is going to help Zach Godley. It it is going to help him. I don't know about just as much as a guy as another as another pitcher. Robbie Ray has that really weird sort of profile that he you know obviously strikes a bunch of guys out, but when he does give up contact, it's like the hardest in the league. So yeah. it's going to be interesting to see how that matters. And you got a, you know, got a guy like Robbie Ray, who everybody already really loves. But now, if he may be influenced even more, just because the all that hard contact is now not so hard anymore. So it's weird. There's so many push me pull me things going on here that's going to make it, uh, going to make it very very interesting. And very, very interesting is just the way we like it. Uh, before oh, I let absolutely. you go, uh, J.D. Martinez signs up in your uh, backyard uh, with the Boston Red Sox up there. How do you see this J.D. Martinez signing from a fantasy perspective? Oh, yeah, well, I think that's fine. I mean, yeah, there's no there's no question that, the, you know, that he's going he's gonna to hit, he's going to bat third or fourth, he's going to knock in runs. The wall, who knows? Um, how that'll the matter? You know, is he going to get as many homers? Is he going to get doubles? I think he's you know he's, he's a fly ball hitter. He's not you know I I think he'll play just fine. The you know, forty home runs is tough for anybody, but I think it's a reasonable baseline. I think you know they'll they'll dent the wall left and right, and they'll find at bats for him. You know the bigger question is what is what happens with Hanley Ramirez and Mitch Moreland. Yeah, and that mat, might not matter as much for mixed leaguers, but for AL only and deeper mixed leagues, that's it, it's huge. Because Alex Cora came out and said that not only is Henry Maris his first baseman, he's his number three hitter. Wow. So, you know, what's Alex Cora supposed to say on February 20th or whatever day it was? You know, he's trying to motivate, motivate, a, you know, a, a guy like that. And uh, so, I, you know, I, you know, I, I, I maybe gave Hanley a few more at bats because I figured he was just falling into a, a, a platoon. Maybe it's a little more than a platoon, but. You know, I, I think it's a good problem to have trying to figure out if you're going to use Mitch Moreland or Hanley Ramirez, relatively speaking. But um, I, I, I don't see Hanley bouncing back and, and, and being the, the hitter of even two years ago. Todd, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. Looking forward to it already, Patrick. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball and ESPN, and he'll be joining me for his regular talk with Todd here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week I want to talk about roster planning for the new pitching environment. With pitchers and catchers reporting this week, I have entered Phase 2 of my 2018 draft planning process. Phase 1 started shortly after the end of the regular season and consisted of me watching the playoffs then forgetting about baseball entirely. 
I know there are many fantasy owners who really dig in during my phase two, and it probably helps most of them. But I think I get a bigger benefit from not doing anything baseball-related for a little while. Clears the head. Like when I'm doing a particularly tough crossword puzzle. I know that if I just put it aside for a while, the answers will often come popping into my head as soon as I go back to it. Now I'm looking at my fantasy baseball puzzle, and one thing has popped into my head right away. I need to figure out how to manage a pitching situation that has really changed. I play in a league that, like most of you, has an innings minimum. In our case, it's a thousand innings, and I'm not sure how to get them because of the huge change in how major league teams are using starters, as I discussed with Gene McCaffrey a little earlier in the show. My first Roto League way back in the early 90s had a thousand inning minimum with the standard nine pitcher roster. I always wanted to just scrape past the minimum because keeping the innings denominator down meant more second half flexibility in managing my roster for the pitching decimals. The trick was how to get to the minimum. Just averaging out the innings required for pitchers didn't make any sense to me. Nine pitchers to get a thousand innings is about 111 innings per pitcher. And even back then, no pitcher got 111 innings in a season, and of course they still don't. So for a while, I tried treating pitchers in roster pairs. Instead of nine individual pitchers, I thought about managing four and a half pitcher pairs. A thousand innings divided by four and a half pairs was about 220 innings per pair. Unfortunately, this had two drawbacks. So many starters were over 220 innings that the second part of the pair needed, well, zero. And the .5 of a pitcher, that ninth guy on the staff, had to get about 110 innings. And I was right back at square one since I would either be 60 innings short or 60 innings over. And if it was the latter, they would be innings from an endgame starter, which I suspected would be murder on my decimals. Then I hit on the idea of pitcher triads. Now, the disadvantage of naming my plan after Hong Kong crime syndicates was more than offset by the workability of the plan. Each set of three pitchers needed 333 innings. I could triple up a couple of 60-inning Lima relievers, or maybe my closer, with one 210 or 220-inning starter, and I'd make the minimum, and I'd probably have pretty great decimals. It was a 4x4 league, so Ks didn't matter. Executing the plan turned out to be pretty easy. Because in 1992, 32 Major League starting pitchers had 210 innings or more. In fact, 15 of them had 240 innings or more. The sheer availability of these long-inning starters presented all kinds of options. I could grab a cheap high-wind guy with so-so decimals like Bruce Hurst, 14 wins, 385-126, and I could offset him with maybe two closers and some killer Lima guys. Or I could pay the premium for Greg Maddox, say, 20 wins with a 218 ERA and a 101 whip, and go with a couple of $1 Lima relievers. Fast forward to 2017 or 18, the situation is entirely different. Just two starters in the majors last year had more than 210 innings. Chris Sale had 214 and a third, and Irvin Santana had 211 and a third. Only another 13 starters had even more than 200 innings. So the 2017 pool of 210-inning starters, basically it's empty. Now, using the triad strategy means anchoring each triad with a 180-inning starter, which means a couple of 75-inning relievers, just to make that innings minimum. Unfortunately, that too was easier in 1992. That season, 47 full-time relievers got more than 75 innings. Eight relievers got 100 or more. 
Well, last season, only 18 relievers had 75-plus, and only one, Yusmero Petit, got over 90. And I'm pretty sure he had a start in there somewhere. It seems highly unlikely that we will ever see a return to the days when we had dozens of 210-inning starters. If anything, the reverse will be true, as more and more teams move to six-man rotations and 10-day DL vacations that were pioneered by the Dodgers and deeper bullpens to keep producing starter innings. At the same time, though, rising strikeout per nine rates among relievers are combining with their lower innings counts by starters to narrow the gap between the two classes of pitchers in actual raw strikeout totals, such that two decent strikeout relievers can actually get more Ks than one costly starter. So, what to do? Well, when in doubt, I do the math. I went and downloaded the February 20th Baseball HQ Major League Pitcher Projections. The news for the triad plan is bad, just as I suspected. No pitchers are projected over 220 innings. Sale and Corey Kluber topped the list at 218, and there are just eight other starters over 200 innings. After some noodling, I decided to go back to the pitcher pairs plan, not least because I'm a sucker for alliteration. Patrick's perfectly productive pitcher pairs plan? Whoa, goosebump city! The difference would be getting four pairs at 240, plus an extra Lima guy at the end of the staff. Using a budget split of 180 to 80, about 69% for hitters, I first set up a Stars and Scrubs pitching staff anchored by Kluber and Carlos Carrasco for a combined $54. That's about what I expect them to fetch in my auction league. The plan just didn't work. I only had $26 left and it wasn't enough to get the other pitchers I needed, including some saves. So next up, I tried the Santana plan. One ace and then a whole bunch of skilled pitchers, including some closers. This worked out a little better. My pitcher pairs turned out to be Corey Kluber with Hector Rondon, Jay Happ with Blake Parker, Sean Manea with Roberto Osuna, and Mike Leake with Nate Jones. The ninth guy, Will Harris of Houston. All good Lima relievers, those guys, you'll notice. My total was 1,060 innings with 66 wins, 61 saves, a 341-14 line, and 1,040 strikeouts. Based on past years in my league, this line would get me somewhere around 42 to 46 pitching points, which is really competitive. Thanks largely to Kluber's near 300 projected strikeouts, even my Ks were in the top half of the league, wins were in the middle of the pack, and my decimals right at the top. All good, right? Well, maybe not. The problem with the Santana plan is the risk. You lose the ace, you not only get ripped on wins and Ks, but it endangers your innings minimum. In our league, like most, if you don't get the thousand innings, you get zeros in both the decimal categories. That's a lot of fantasy eggs to place in one surgically repaired basket. So finally, I tried a spread-the-risk plan, keeping the same relievers, but capping my individual pitcher spending at $16 a man, while also not dipping down too low into that $3 to $5 range for end-game starters, like you use in the Santana plan. Here my results were a little different. Remember, same relievers, but my starters turned out to be Marcus Stroman and Marco Estrada of the Jays, Jose Barrios of Minnesota, and Trevor Bauer of Cleveland. Actually, the first run of random selection got me all four of the guys in the Blue Jays' rotation. I didn't think that was sensible. I ended up with about the same number of innings, a slight decline in my decimals, and slightly fewer Ks, but I thought the risk would now be lower. It's early yet to determine how I'm going to approach pitching, though. 
things could still change, especially if teams get wise to the idea or maybe announce towards the end of spring training that they're going to pitch their better relievers more than their lesser relievers. Is there any reason that top relievers can't pitch four innings a week? That's 100 innings in a season instead of 65. Conversely, maybe teams could get even more rigid in allotting their bullpen innings, which could freeze even the top guys in that 60 to 65 inning range that's really not much help. For now, I think I'm leaning towards spreading the risk, but of course, a lot's going to depend on what happens at the auction table. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Thursday, February 22nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number two of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Gene McCaffrey, who writes the Wise Guy Baseball 2018 Annual and keeps it up to date at wiseguybaseball.com. Gene is a great friend of the podcast and a great friend of mine personally. I also want to thank another friend, Todd Zola, from mastersball.com and ESPN. Todd will be appearing every week here on the show, and it's always great to hear from him. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our minor league minute analyst was Rob Gordon, and our position profiles analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Thursday on the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.